Why did you want to hurt yourself? Because I wanted it like a, re- a release from tension, from anxiety, from whatever. But I suppose you're kind of, you're taking it out of reality for that moment. Like I said, right, no more drink, no more drugs, no more smoking. And that was it? That was it. You just stopped? Just stopped. Always got to eat. I've, I've always got to eat, but I, I enjoy my food now. And like yeah. where I used to need to convince myself for a year to take the next step in that, I hate using this term, but journey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, it, now it takes a, like a week, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and like I said to you earlier, now I'm now eating more calories than my body actually needs so that I can get bigger at the gym. Yeah. And that means losing some of my definition. And that has always been the way I determine how healthy I am. You're in a police cell and you're in, you're in your boxes. Yeah. No one is, is listening to you. I used to bang on the door. Well, you can't be more out of control there, can you? Exactly. Yeah, and it, so it's, it's extra scary. So you've got to just accept that everyone starts somewhere. I mean, even when, when you write a book, when you put out a video post, mm-hmm. when you go to the gym, when you go for a run, when you put on your eyeliner for the first time as a 12-year-old girl, it ain't going to be as good as when you do it again and again and again. And so you just have to own it. Like, walk in and just be the Wally. Just admit, I'm I'm, I'm the gym Wally. I've never done this before. And ask for help. Own it. Get a T-shirt with gym twat on it. <laughs> yeah. Hi, I'm Ellen McChrystal. This is The New Mind. Today's guest is Stephen Warwick. Stephen Warwick is a creative foodie, um, which if you follow his Instagram after you've listened to this podcast, you will understand a bit more about what that means. Um, but he kind of combines food and art and sound. It's really beautiful, but uses food actually as part of, well, part of his healing journey. Um, and we're going to find out more about that today and about why food has become so important and what it actually represents for Steve. Um, so we're going to welcome him now. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Well, thanks for having me. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to know why you started calling me Stephen, though. I've done something wrong. <laughs> and also, we just had a conversation, which is hilarious, about what we were going to say. And you said to me, what what happens after you introduce me? And I say, I say, welcome to the podcast. And everyone else says, thanks for having me. That's exactly what you said, which is it's why I laugh. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> <laughs> so now we've done the really bad introduction. It's not your fault, by the way. It's just predictable. I'm taking no blame. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, creative foodie, I made that term up because we didn't really know what to call you. But looking at your Instagram, that's exactly what you do. Yeah, I yeah, I kind of make healthy food, healthy meals, uh, look more, or hopefully more restaurant standard. Well, I I assumed you were a chef. No, not the, at all. That, that is, I mean, I did a little bit of research, but obviously I only really had your Instagram to go on. So looking at it, it's, I said this to you when we had a chat before, it combines art and food. Like it's not just oh yummy that's lovely food although obviously that is a part of it (laughs) but it's just the way that you do it it's really it's like i said to you earlier it's like asmr for for the visuals and also i know that you put some sound on but um it, it really is something that draws you in it's beautiful it's clever and i love and and you've got this really really good engagement on your page uh, it's really hard to get that, by the way. So let's not minimise 
the power of your page i've got i've got an incredible group of followers you have I yeah re- re- like they really they really they really support it they really seem to care um yeah and and yeah i'm very grateful for that yeah well I, I think they're supportive and care because you've done such a good job with it maybe but it's part of well it's definitely that it's part of your um like i said your healing journey yes. so to give context to that, do you want to tell me what led you into this sort of creative field with food? So the the creative part really came as a later step. It started out with just me trying to explore or better my relationship with food after struggling with eating disorders, which started off as something you would describe as uh, anorexia, which then really kind of crash dived into bulimia uh, for several years um, but my page was part of that recovery because I started to to like food or accept food into my life I suppose mm. did you change when you say accept food into your life because actually if you were anorexic to begin with that's the starvation mm-hmm. and then with the bulimia there'd be the binging and then the purging is that how it happened there was there was the occasional binge, but it wasn't something that I did regularly. I still wanted to avoid food. Right. Um, and I'd, I'd keep saying no and no and no over the course of a year, and then we'd get a family get-together, and I'd just go, fuck it. Yeah. And I'd eat everything in sight. Yeah. Um, but they weren't regular binges. Right. That, that's what, it was, it was a weird combination of both. Yeah. Yeah. So when you were sick, just... Because I think it's really important to go into the uh, the graphic detail when we talk about eating disorders. Because so many people won't. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were sick, was that after a binge, or was that just because you'd you'd eaten something? Both. Right. So definitely after a binge. Um, and I think actually that the first time I, I really realised that I had an issue was when I'd had a tuna salad, uh, and it was it was salad leaves, spinach. Uh, one can of tuna, no mayo, no nothing. Uh, but because it was quite filling, because I just didn't eat. Yeah. The second I, I felt that bit of fullness on my stomach, I tried to fight it, but I had to come back myself sick. Yeah. And I was I was sitting there battling, do not go, do not go. But it just it overwhelms you, mm. and and you have to you have to go and get rid of it. So how old were you when you started to realise that you didn't want to have food? When I say my late teens, I remember being uh, like 14, 15 and certain uh, celebs were coming out, getting their tops off and whatnot and, and everyone wanted a six pack. And so that kind of so social pressure mm. was there uh, and I used to exercise obsessively mm-hmm. uh, trying to get that, that body. Um so there was, I suppose, an unhealthy kind of relationship was starting there with exercise, uh, but I didn't understand what a calorie was. It wasn't until I saw a Tic Tac advert when they said, you know, just one calorie, and I oh thought, Oh God, yeah, I forgot about that. What was it? What's a calorie? What, yeah. what are these things? Um, but I think, yeah, when I got to my late teens, when I put on a little bit of weight at uni mm. with, with the cheap beer, mm-hmm. uh, that's when I really started getting um, issues with my body. And then, because I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't educated. I thought, well, I need to stop eating. Then. So around eighteen. Yeah, about that. Yeah. I suppose that's quite a common 
if you, I know a lot of men probably don't talk about eating disorders as much as they should, but I'd imagine that's quite a common age actually. The university when when the boys are drinking more and seeing mm -hmm. that little beer belly or whatever happen, and like oh that's not that's not what I want to look like, and that's maybe when a lot of boys are quite because mum's not there as well to to help with food. So there's lots of different things, but of course that's not. Because let's face it, eating disorders aren't just about weight mm. and food. It, I, I've said to you earlier, and I've said it before, about my own experience, is that it really is a form of OCD. Mm -hmm. It's about perfectionism, and it's about control. Yeah. Would you say you're a perfectionist? Yeah. 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 If I'm going to do something, I want, I want, with anything, with anything I yeah. do, if I'm doing it, I want to be the best at it. Yes. And. I've never been the best at anything just yet. <laughs> well, your page would say otherwise, actually. <laughs> no, I've always... I mean, I, I put it down to ambition, but I suppose you can put it down to that mm. that kind of negative side of that eating disorder. I think so. I think with food, obviously, there's, there is there is such a fundamental thing mm -hmm. in the sense that we have to have it to survive. <laughs> so if we if we can control something that actually keeps us alive then that's the epitome, isn't it, of of strength, if you look at it from mm. a really warped angle. But, of course, this is all about the survival. For the brain, it's all about survival. It's, it's very difficult to say that to someone that doesn't understand eating disorders. But having worked with a lot of people with them, experienced myself and talking to you as well, it really is about the way the brain adapts yeah. and how food can be seen as a way of feeling in control. Absolutely, especially when everything else is, is out of your control or yeah. seemingly out of your control. You can always control what goes into your mouth. You can, and, and I think this is difficult, isn't it? Because if you start to control what goes in your mouth mm -hmm. in terms of what you're eating and what, what your weight looks like and everything else, you probably feel like that's quite a normal thing in this society. It feels quite a normal place to start, doesn't it? It doesn't feel... Like it's a bad thing mm -hmm. to watch what you eat. It doesn't feel like it's a bad thing to start counting calories because everything is around how people look, what they eat, even in terms of, you know, nutrition. If you go on Instagram or TikTok's terrible for this, but, you know, the scrolling. And if you like something around food, it, your, your algorithm picks it up. Yeah. And I know you were in this zone way before this was a, a real issue. But for those that are going through it today everything's around food everything's around the way you look the way that you feel everything is around food and i think therefore if you start to feel like you want to control food it doesn't feel like a bad thing at the time which is why it's quite dangerous yeah yeah i think that's why with my experience why i, I kind of didn't accept or didn't realize that i had an eating disorder yeah uh, until that that tuna salad, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I I didn't I didn't see what I was doing. The avoid avoiding eating and that feeling of satisfaction or accomplishment because I haven't eaten for three days, that didn't seem weird to me. That just felt like me. Yeah, that's just what I did. What did you do before that though to feel that level of accomplishment? <sighs> I didn't really. I mean, I, I was really sporty at school. Right. Played lots of sports um, to, a, to a high standard in, in some of them, relatively high standard. Uh, 
And I suppose that that would have given me that that sense of achievement. Mm. Um, but then, you know, going to uni, you kind of drop out of those sort of things, and then when you come out of uni and you got a job, and you all of, all of a sudden you haven't got as much time, and you kind of lose those things. And also, I suppose going to uni was a big change. Mm. So <laughs> you you've gone from, I mean, I always think it's really scary. The idea of going to university, I think people just take it for granted. Oh, that's just what you do. But actually, was it quite scary going to uni for you? No. <laughs> I wasn't ready for it. No. I didn't know that I wasn't ready for it, but yeah. I wasn't. Because all I did, my first year, I kind of just kind of stumbled through. Yeah. Uh, but it was mostly about the drink and, and, and all that good stuff at uni. Uh, the second year, I I didn't go to any lectures. I stayed in bed most days watching Friends. Oh, what a uh, great, great show. Yeah, we we had a, a download body. You could do, like, download anything. Um, but yeah, I just watched reruns of Friends. I, I stopped caring about my, my personal health, actually. And looking back now, I never really realised this, but I was I was probably really struggling back then. Yeah, I was going to say, you must have been. Yeah, yeah. Were you tired a lot? I, I didn't sleep. Right. I'd be up for days... Uh, and again, I just thought that was just me. Just don't don't sleep a lot. <laughs> was that fueled by you know you were drinking a lot and partying? Perhaps mm -hmm. was that fueled by that the the lack of sleep, or was it something else? I think when when I went out and got drunk, then I would come back and collapse and go to sleep. Yeah. Uh, but if I if I wasn't drinking, then I'd just I'd be awake. I'd be walking up and down the corridors. I'd go out for a walk or anything. God. Yeah. That that's hell, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Being awake all the time. So that's where you just didn't have the energy for anything else. Had the eating kicked in then? Uh no. No. Right. I so that was the beginning you sort of withdrawing a little bit from life. Yeah, yeah. And then I had a bit of a breakdown at uni and I can't really remember the exact how it how it happened, but my my dad came and, and picked me up. And drove me home, and I never went back. Wow! So you never completed? No, no. So the breakdown. Do you, do you, did that just sort of was it like that snowball effect? Yeah, and I, I split up with a girl at the time, and I think because of my kind of emotional stability, that was the end of the world. Yeah. And you know, so that uh, drink, a fractured mind as it was. Yeah. Uh, it all just kind of came together and imploded <laughs> which is not and for a lot of people that get to uni they think they're adults now but mm -hmm. their brain's still developing so you're going through all that that's why i say it's actually quite scary you go through all these big changes at a time where your brain still isn't fully developed mm. and it's not actually easy for everybody to go through that what do you think looking back made you you mentioned emotional stability there mm -hmm. or a lack of mm -hmm. um what would you say i know a little bit about the background <clears throat> here but what would you say led to that emotional instability going back back or going yeah back? go back to why you think by the time you got to uni you know that second year you just sort of fell apart um so as i said earlier like i had that the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder when I was 15. No, yeah. Nothing was really done with that. Uh, it was just given to me as, as a condition, a label, whatever. Did you know what it meant? No. 
and I've never bothered looking into it. It's, it's the one thing I've never bothered researching. Really? Yeah. Well, I asked you, so when you said you told me earlier, it, it was off camera and you told me that, mm -hmm. um, and I said earlier, oh, do you think that was the correct diagnosis? Because I, after you, what you say here and what you told me earlier, I actually said, oh, I wonder if it was more of a sort of an emotional injury mm -hmm. rather than a personality disorder which is difficult because you would fit a bracket if you're going to see psychiatrist yeah. or clinical psychologist you'll fit a bracket and and that's what they have to do in order to know where to place you but um so at 15 that happens and i just want to remind the listeners that we haven't yet got to the eating disorder bit but we know that there's a collapse of of self mm -hmm. at university 15 you get this diagnosis so there's three years between then and going to university where you don't really know what it means mm -mm. you've been given this label it's like okay whatever but what led to that moment where you were given that label of bpd which is now known everybody as eupd which is emotional instability personality disorder as i said to Stephen earlier i i prefer to call it emotional dysregulation disorder but that's the name it has. It was known as borderline personality disorder. Um, what led to that? Can I just point out that I've come here today and you've given me a new problem? Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I really am my you've patience. You've reshaped my world. <laughs> yeah. In a good way or a bad way. Eek. <laughs> Different label, it's fine. Different label, Change yeah. is good. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, they, keep, they do change these labels. Um, for some reason, I think borderline personality disorder just doesn't fit what the the issue is which is the emotional lack of emotional stability yeah so they decided to call it emotional instability disorder which i think is horrific um because it suggests that you are now emotionally unstable which we've discussed earlier and you're not um it is about emotional dysregulation the way your brain cannot regulate strong and overwhelming emotions mm -hmm. and so you become very reactive to it um so yeah, I, I really am not comfortable with that label for anyone because it doesn't really help them. It's quite condescending as well. Yeah, and it, it doesn't help other people really understand it either. It <laughs> just makes you sound a little bit nuts, which you're not. It just means you can't, <laughs> but it means you can't, um, it, it, you just can't control it. You know, your, your brain's communication with the body is so overwhelming mm -hmm. that you can't control it. And that's where self-soothing and so on comes in. And OCD is a great self-soother. Yeah. Which is yeah. why I'm kind of interested in that bit before 15. Because this is where I always talk about, for those people that are listening that have heard all the other episodes, I do apologise because I'm going to say the same thing I say every other time. But the prefrontal cortex mm. from 7 starts to fuse. Up until 7, everything that goes in, goes in unfiltered and is captured by the brain in a way where it becomes very, very fundamental in terms of development. After seven, it's still very immature in its development and lots of stuff is still going in that you're not really able to analyze or do anything with. So it becomes a massive part of your reality. Mm -hmm. So what was going on for you, even if you don't want to go into massive detail, before the age of 15? So my, uh, I was, I was lucky in my in my childhood. My mum and dad loved me very much. I never wanted for anything. Uh, we you know we kind of grew up relatively humble, but the, I never needed anything. Um, 
but there was issues within my family on on my mum's side um like her mum and her sister were just not nice people mm. they were not nice to her at all uh, and she suffered a lot because of it with her mental health um so obviously like i i, I had to see that happen and, and see her being upset and not knowing why she was upset and you know, going to hospital and, and not really understanding why. When you say hospital, do you mean psychiatric hospital? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, she, she was always on, on tablets as well, controlling this, that and the other. Mm. Um, but look, she's she's in, she's in a much more positive place now. Uh, but back then when I was younger, I, di I, I didn't understand it, but I was still old enough to have to have some kind of information about it yeah um but yeah my before that so when i was about six uh i did walk in on my nan uh in a shop that she was running uh kissing another man uh and she looked up she looked at me and i kind of froze for a moment mm. uh and then walked back out and never told anyone and so you kept a secret yeah yeah i it's weird because I didn't, I didn't feel like I was keeping a secret because I didn't think about it ever again. You blocked it. Yeah, until about a year or so later when my mum told me that Nan and Granddad are going to split up, and I said, "Yeah, I know, Mummy." Mm. It's quite sad, really, isn't it? Because at six, like to see your nan in that position anyway at six is a bit <laughs> weird, but to sort of know that this. <laughs> I don't mean to, but it is, isn't it? It's like, oh, you don't really want to think of adults in that way at all when you're a kid. But when it's your nan, it's a bit like, oh, and then I don't know what to do with that. That's You kind of know, don't you, on some level this isn't okay, but you just, gone. There, there are horror stories of both of them uh, that I won't go into because it'll just go on yeah. and on. They're boring. Uh uh, not not things that I've witnessed, but things I've heard that yes. have happened uh, before I was born as well. Uh, just just not nice people. Really not nice people. And like you say, your mum went through a lot, really being emotionally abused by her family. Yeah. Um, she was put into a psychiatric hospital. You visited her there from what you said earlier. Yeah. And so I said to you earlier, that would have been very traumatic for a young boy to see his mum being upset or suffering or in hospital and you know the way that your brain would have developed around that would have well I always talk about self-abandonment children don't have the ability to go okay so mum's not very well because ABC she's going to be fine you know if you're 10 on 9 10 6 7 mm. 8 9 10 um, she's going to be fine she's going to have some medication she'll come out in a couple of weeks she will get better what the child to do is I can't do anything to help. I don't no. know what to do. Is it my fault? Is it because I'm not saying you had that, but children generally, what could I do? I can't make it better. I'm not in control of this situation. And all of those kind of very obviously age appropriate thoughts mm -hmm. will be there, but then you'll just go, Oh, playground, football <laughs> and so they just go they go in, but there's nothing that goes in with it. So it just becomes this discombobulation of thoughts landing and then the cellular response to those thoughts being activated in the body as an emotion. And if that happens again and again, the feedback loops are forming Yeah. and your prefrontal cortex is forming around 
a sense of not being in control, but you don't know that's happening because you're also playing football or playing with the toy cars or watching cartoons. And, and everything is just happening very quickly in the moment, in the moment. And it's not until you get a bit older and you're really not in control, university, mm. where the brain goes, oh, this feeling of being out of control, we need to do something to stay alive here. So let's just be super hypervigilant or very avoidant. We'll do one of the two, perhaps both. <laughs> and that'll keep us going for a bit. And then you'll latch on to whatever you can to survive. Yeah, I, I've, I've done quite a lot of uh, realisation, I suppose, today, just chatting to you before this. Yeah. Um, when you, I've never really looked back and analysed it. I think look, my dad did a really good job of explaining things to me when my mum was poorly because he always used the analogy of a broken leg. If you've got a broken leg, you can see it. Yeah. You know it's broken, you can see it get better. Yeah. You know, a broken mind is the same as that. You just can't see it. Yeah. So he tried to put, like, yeah. in, in kind of 11-year-old terms, I suppose. Well, very good of him to do that, by the way, especially back then mm. because it's really hard to explain to a child when their mum's in hospital for something that you cannot see. Yeah really hard it must have been very difficult for him yeah yeah but he's um he was a massive strength for all of us always has been always has been is he is he um quite uh and i'm only asking this because i think it really helps people to see themselves in the story mm. is he still very much like that today yeah yeah i it's the only person that i like really fear going right uh, that'll be yeah that touched on something there. yeah he's obviously been that wall of strength <laughs> sorry about that yeah so yeah he's always taken care of us all yeah and uh, you know he's, he's getting a bit older now and uh, he's getting uh, the older he gets the softer he gets yeah he's always been very loving my parents told me they love me every single day they still do uh, but I've I there's I sometimes feel that maybe that kind of responsibility is being moved down to me as he's getting a bit older and trying to just take a step back. Yeah. And, and uh, I suppose that's a privilege for me because yeah. of how much respect I have for him for what he's done for us. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And I just think it's to be really... He, he should be really congratulated for that. Good parents are hard to find. Mm. Really. And your mum will know that. You know, having good parents is just, it's a blessing. And, you know, I always like to congratulate the ones that get it right because it's really bloody hard. <laughs> so if if he's done that for you, that's really amazing. And I'm sure he already knows how you feel, but it's just nice to give both of them that little bit of, you know, air it. My parents were awesome. Because, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you know, maybe they don't know how important that is. Yeah, that's true. But I think look, <laughs> if you look at back at my kind of late teens and then through to my mid-twenties when my, my life was chaotic and drug-fueled and whatnot and I was just an absolute liability. Yeah. <laughs> then maybe they they might have thought they hadn't done their job very well. <laughs> yeah. Well, hence the reason I kind of want to shout them out today and say, look, it turned out all right in the end. Yeah, yeah. I got <laughs> my got shit together. <laughs> but it's hard, you know. I think being a parent, you don't realise how out of control you will feel it as a parent. Mm. That you know, because the first few years, oh, it's lovely, isn't it? Take them to their ballet classes or football or whatever. I did look great in a tutu when I was free. 
<laughs> I'm sure you did. I will ask for proof. Um, but I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's like that it feels so great for the first few years. And then when you realise they they have their own thoughts and lives and they can do pretty much what they want, that's when parenting gets really tough mm. because you don't have the ability to control it anymore. And, you know, you, as you referenced just there very briefly, drugs, drink, as well as the eating disorder all kicks in. Mm. Um, so, first of all, a little bit back and forth, but yeah. hopefully people don't mind that much. Sorry if it's a bit too much because I'm going <laughs> back and forth around the houses here. But uh, BPD-15, mm-hmm. what led to that diagnosis? From me sitting in front of the doctor? Yeah. I can't actually remember exactly. Um, I, I was self-harming. Yeah. Um, and I was sad with no real reason for to be sad. Um, so, yeah, yeah, you know, obviously kind of having an understanding of, of mental health all at that age already, I thought well, I need to go to the doctors. Um, nothing was really done. It was Talipram and 20 mm. milligrams, you know. just Which they wouldn't give to you now. Really? No, not at 15. You'd have to go through, you wouldn't be able to get that through the GP. I don't know what the situation was there. You'd have to go through um, CAMS, which is the Children's Mm -hmm. Mental Health Services. You'd have to see a psychiatrist, and they're very, very reluctant to give antidepressants now unless you're 18. Okay. Mm. Well, that's good. Yeah. I didn't really see they did me any good anyway. I didn't didn't take them for very long. Yeah. Um, In fact, I I didn't do much with it the the diagnosis I just kind of part of me was relieved because mm. I knew that self harming and cutting myself and 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 wanting to hurt yourself wasn't normal yeah uh, so for someone to go oh you're doing that because of this yes I was like all right okay thank God for that yeah <laughs> did it stop uh no I self harmed into my into my twenties um. Yeah, no, it, it it stopped when when I just turned my life around. But yeah. I did sometimes. I I self harmed because I wanted to hurt myself. Why did you want to hurt yourself? Because I wanted it like a re- a release from tension, from anxiety, from whatever. Uh, it was like you you know you take that cut and then there there is a, there was a physical release. Uh, but I suppose you kind of you're taken out of reality for that moment. Mm. Same as when you get when you get drunk, you know. I used to drink a lot because I wanted to be removed from my reality because it scared me. I didn't like it. Yeah. With, with although with drinking, you kind of know that's what you're doing. Were you aware of that with the self harm? Again, I've been open about my history of self harm. Mine was definitely more reactive. Mm-hmm. But you, it sounds like was yours reactive, or was yours more like experimental? That's a shit experiment, isn't it? It is, <laughs> but you definitely did it. So <laughs> I, sometimes it was definitely to get uh, attention, like the whole cry for help thing. Yeah, uh, definitely that. Um, and as we said earlier, if you're not being heard doing other things, then yeah. you kind of take it to the next level. Um, well, after an argument or something like that. Yeah, after an argument or after a series of things not going to plan or. Anything that kind of derailed me. So if you weren't in control. If I wasn't in control. Yeah. yeah. 
because that was again just referencing what you were seeing with your mum and various other family issues which I'm sure you don't want to go into too massive detail but the the not being in control seems to be the biggest thing that your brain uh, became maladaptive to so I'm not in control so I'll just try all these different ways of feeling in control and self-harm was you were very very sad but self-harm was one of the things that that you felt oh if I do this I can control the fact that someone's going to care or someone's going to see me yeah is that fair to say that's very fair to say yeah also there's a dopamine release when we cut okay so um, because the way the survival system works of course there is yeah, yeah of course there, yeah, yeah it's all about people think dopamine is just the fun chemical mm-hmm. it's not it's the survival chemical it's the motivation so if we cut ourselves and there's blood, the brain gives you a drip of dopamine so you can be motivated to seek safety. Yeah. So that's why it can become quite addictive. Yeah. Well, luckily I wasn't addicted to that. No. It was something I dabbled in. <laughs> but you did get a little shot of dopamine, which maybe yeah. tells us a bit about the addictive side of your, your brain as well. I think maybe I, I would have... I could have been more addicted to it if when it happened if 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 i associated that with someone caring about me yes i could see that becoming an addiction but it, it that didn't happen great not every time anyway so. yeah so actually it was like all all components did not fit yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Try, so, try something else yeah yeah <laughs> well that's exactly what the brain does right that that's not the survival that's not the safety mm. next so what came next Drugs and alcohol, I suppose. Mm. And that was at uni? Uh, alcohol was at uni. So before I went to uni for a couple of years, I mean, you start drinking when you're young, don't you? Yeah. Uh, but then when I was about 16, 17, and 18, for my 18th birthday, I had one pint because I just wasn't drinking. Yeah. Went to uni, did Freshers Week without drinking. Wow. Uh, yeah. And But then I just thought, sod it. I'll have a beer. I'll have another beer. And then beers became very regular, mm. uh, and 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 you can escape whatever situation you're in. You, you escape it with, with alcohol, don't you? What happened to you? Well, how did you? Because I know with a lot of people, they just become the version of themselves that is locked in when they're not drinking. I don't drink anymore because I I, I call myself uh, unpredictable. Right. So some people drink and they always get angry. Some yeah. people always get emotional. Yeah. No telling what I've become. Right. It was, it was a completely sporadic. Um, when I got out of uni a bit, bit further on, when I, when I was drinking more heavily to escape even more frequently, um, the common link between me drinking was me also being arrested ah. for numerous things. Uh, so I'd, I'd often wake up in a police cell. That couldn't have been very nice. No, it's definitely shit. Yeah. <laughs> and by the time you wake up, are you a bit like, oh, God, not again? Or is it almost like acceptance? This fear, because not only do you wake up relatively sober, so you're back into reality, the, the thing that scares you anyway. Yeah. But you're in a police cell and you're in, you're in your boxes. Yeah. No one is is listening to you. Oh, you used to bang on the door. Well, you can't be more out of control there, can you? Exactly. Yeah. And it, so it's, it's extra scary. Mm. And the police are horrible things. And they, 
I'm not going to say the police really don't care about you, but they've obviously got other things they're dealing with. Well, they can't. They can't. They haven't got time to care. No, no. So I'm banging on doors and I'm I'm screaming. I'm really kind of losing my shit. 25 hours was the longest they held me. Oh God. Uh, yeah, you, you you just go stir crazy. Yeah. And I know it's a short time in in the big scheme of it's things. It's not. 20, 25 hours is forever when you're in it. <laughs> I mean, re- retrospectively, you could say it's not that long, but when you're there, you don't know. I suppose you don't know when it's going to end. No, and that's yeah, that's it. That and that's complete loss of control, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. So you were drinking to the point of, like, you were you were. Funnily enough, everything's about control, but you were drinking to the point of being completely out of control, putting you in a prison cell which is another level of being out of control mm. so this is now just this really terrible self-sabotage oh yeah i want to be in control but everything i'm doing is put me further out of control yeah. so then i guess something must happen in your brain where because what your brain is actually trying to do is to self sue so with alcohol it starts off as a bit of fun and we all know that like mm-hmm. we don't no one i don't think anyone wakes up and goes hmm alcoholism Seems like a really good idea. Let's do that. We start off having a bit of fun. (laughs) We start off having a bit of fun and then we realise, oh, I feel this or I feel that. I feel I can escape this anxiety or this terrible feeling that I'm carrying around with me Mm 24-7. So good, we'll do that for like three hours, it'll be fine. This time, I won't get arrested because last time I know what I did wrong, I won't do that again this time. I'll only have 16 beers. (laughs) I won't have the full 24. And then, of course, by the time you've had the 16th, it's way too late. So it just becomes this way of, I think, resolving a problem that's not resolvable through alcohol, but you don't know that when you're a kid. And then your brain must create another layer of um, of kind of, well, it, it feels really good to escape. Mm-hmm. So actually, although it could end up messy... This is where the illusion starts to come in, which is the false self. And this is where I always refer to the IFS, the parts therapy. Mm-hmm. The false self goes, you're going to be fine. Like, you've got this. You you are not going to get arrested. It's exactly what I just said. You're not going to get arrested. You're going to know when to stop. So don't worry about it. Lesson learned. And then obviously it's another two or three years before that actually realisation kicks in that that is a false self that's getting involved. Yeah. Um, why do you think you wanted to believe the false narrative of it will be fine next time? Because I want to be normal. Yeah. I wanted to be like everyone else. Yeah. Um, but no one else drank wine and vodka and whatnot like orange juice. Yeah. And I, and I did. Did you just drink it? Yeah. Like yeah. really quick? Th- there was no pleasure in, in drink. There, there was no, this is a really nice Barolo. Yeah. Like, you know, sit down and enjoy that. No, cheap wine, bump yeah as I, cheap as possible yeah and because i knew the sooner i got drunk the more confident i'd get uh, yeah. in, in whatever setting i was in yeah uh and and the better i'd feel yeah and then like well if i had one more i'm gonna feel better and, yeah. better and then all of a sudden i'm getting caught shoplifting something stupid or getting done for battery or at that point was it self-sabotage <laughs> when you're going into that shop mm. i want to just get inside your head go back if you can and go into the shop, do you know then that, like, is there a voice in your head going, this is fucking stupid, but do it? No, no. I, th- 
because of the because of the bullshit confidence that alcohol gives you, I, I got arrested once because I walked out of Sainsbury's with a crate of beer on my shoulder. Oh my god! I mean, you went for the most obvious thing that you could think about. <laughs> What's the biggest thing I can yeah. get my hands on right now? I just thought if I just act like cool as a cucumber, just act like I bought it off a trot. Uh, it didn't work out. No. <laughs> so so you just thought, oh, it'd be fine. You didn't think this is a bit silly. No, I didn't think that at all. So that that had gone. Yeah. That had gone. Okay. So because we've all we've all been drunk to the point of stupid. We've all done that stupid thing, and there's a little. It's like that little observer self goes, "You are acting a bit of a dick." You know, you you can you can sort of see it, but ah, well, it doesn't matter. You did not have that layer any, anymore. No, I think I'd sped past that. That might come after about four or five glasses, but oh, you know, by the time it takes most people to have that amount, I've done, yeah. I've done three or four bottles. Yeah, you are super, super fast. <laughs> I mean, I'm a fast drinker, to be fair, mm. and I think that is a problem. Yeah. If you are naturally someone that can drink really quick, and you happen to be, uh, I don't know what you call it when you've got like no no feeling in your throat, like a what do they call it? There's a, a term for it. They say something about the iron throat or something like that. I don't know okay. what they call okay. it. But you obviously had one of them. Vodka, wine, whatever, just chuck it down. Yeah. Okay, so then when did you realise that the alcohol wasn't enough? Uh, I don't think there was a conscious like decision or like a self-talk or anything. Um, I was at, I went to a Max Power thing in Birmingham, I think. Uh, and then there was like a penthouse party that we went to afterwards. And the, I, I was probably early 20s, I think. Uh, and like walk into this room, there's champagne everywhere. And in the back room, there's a guy sitting behind the desk, just racking up cocaine, pushing it for people to come and snort and move on. Like just, that, that was his job. Right. Had to carry a bag full of marijuana. Like it was just like something out of, out of a movie. Yeah. Uh, and it felt quite glamorous. Yeah. Uh, and I remember calling someone. Uh, we were drinking, so I was drunk. Um, but I remember calling someone and saying, like, you know, there's cocaine here, and like, should I try it? And like, what, what does it do? And, and I, so I just tried it, and it was absolutely fantastic. Don't do drugs. <laughs> it was the best <laughs> night of my life. Don't do it. <laughs> uh, but look, look dr dr drugs are—they're meant to make you feel good, right? That's why. Yes, that's they why are. People take them. Yeah. Uh, and I had a fantastic time on, on cocaine, but no one around me did. <laughs> no, that you weren't aware of it. No, not at all. So, so you're, you're now sort of heavily into the next phase of escapism. And um, actually, funnily enough, I watched two episodes of the Robbie Williams uh, Netflix documentary. I won't spoil it for people that haven't watched it. Um, I've never been a massive fan of Robbie Williams. Um, not not to be disrespectful, Robbie, if you're listening, because I'm sure you've tuned in. <laughs> but um, I think I was too cool for boy bands, you see. Oh, I so see. I was I was never gonna, and I, I still wouldn't really um, follow any boy bands. I was just not that kind of girl, and and I just sort of thought, oh god, another boy band. You know, mm -hmm. I'm far too wise and mature for this rubbish. <laughs> and uh, and Robbie Williams then I think went off and did various different weird stuff which was fueled by drinking drugs and i just thought oh what a loser hence i mean by the way i have to say i was also a loser at the time so they say life is a reflection 
I wasn't doing the drugs, but I was doing lots of alcohol. But I just didn't really see that the point of of um. I don't mean this in a horrible way. I didn't see the point of Robbie Williams at the time. I just thought he was a bit of a, a lad, being a bit silly. Yeah. Um, but looking at it now, uh, again, I say life is a reflection because he was a mess and so was I. And I think I was just a bit like, who is this idiot? And I was obviously looking too much at him and not at myself. But I think that he's basically sort of talked about this drink and drugs thing and how you just get lost in it um and i guess for you that's the i know it's simple and people have heard people say that millions of times you get lost in the addiction mm. but there really is no other way to say it is there no that becomes the most important thing in your life yeah because it gives you something that i suppose you don't think you'll ever have it gives you that kind of euphoria, that happiness, that relaxed state. That, yeah. And and in real life, when you're sober, that, like life is shit. Especially, yeah. you know, like I was unemployed. Lots of my friends weren't talking to me. My my family had kind of just taken a step back because I was just being so self-destructive and getting arrested all the time. I was, I was just a menace. Mm. So as much as people... My, my friends and my family would have tried to help me to get kicking them back. So that was my life. But when I have drugs or alcohol, I'm, I'm away from that. And I mean, I'm in like a, a nice marshmallowy, cool place. Yeah. So, that, you, so you chase that feeling, right? So what were you thinking about yourself before? Not before, but, you know, if you're not using, what were your... What was your self-perception? I, I hated myself. And I know that sounds a bit cliche and maybe a bit dramatic, but it, it's true. Like my my darkest kind of, I suppose, moments was when I was, I was living, I was in a flat, uh, broken TV, DVD player was still working though, with a handful of, of DVDs. I've watched Juno about a hundred times. Mm. Uh, flat was a mess, bottles of wine everywhere, ashtray, it was just I hadn't shaved for a couple of weeks. I I, I wasn't washing. I'd, I'd given up on, on mm. kind of hygiene and everything. Uh, I had one of those little pens that free electric and that. Yeah. yeah. So I, that was that was running low. So I had one storage heater in the front room that I'd put on sometimes. The rest of the house was free. The rest of the flat was freezing. Um, when I was there, I I didn't look. I didn't go to so one of the reasons I didn't shave was because I knew I'd need to go and look in the mirror. Right. I didn't want to do that. Yeah. Uh, I didn't want to go outside. There, yeah. there was. I remember once, I'd, I'd got some money, it must have been from the Dole, um, but I rang a taxi firm, asked if I could give them a list for them to go and pick it up shopping or drink, uh, and then come round to me just so I didn't have to go outside, just so that I didn't run the risk of someone seeing me. Because, I, you know, loads of alcohol, my face was all bloated. And yeah. I, I just, I just, yeah. I don't God. Know. So, how old are you at that point? Uh, I would have been. I was back from Australia, so I would have been about twenty-four, twenty-five, maybe twenty-four. So the addiction has really gripped you at that point. Yeah. But interestingly, and this story is one of many parts so far. We've got the little boy witnessing the mum, your mum, going through trauma, abuse, mental health issues feeling out of controls, knowing stuff was going on with your nan and all these different bits that perhaps you, you know, 
you you shouldn't talk about because it's such personal family history stuff mm. but i know you told me a couple of bits off camera um university starts to be the breakdown of self mm-hmm. prior to that you've already had a diagnosis because you're not coping well with with what's going on in life um and then your dad picks you up from university and you end up going to australia so picked me up brought me home uh kind of crashed out of a couple of jobs that I tried to get into. Uh, <laughs> if you hear that, that's just the little really crap boom arms that I have. That he's he's basically trapped into the chair. <laughs> um I was living back with my parents then. Uh but I think I still had the flat. But you know, that they'd kind of just sell come back. But again with my my behaviour and my I won't do it again and do it again dad just suggested he goes how do you feel about going to Australia right so I think that was as much for him to get a break from me as it was for me to have something to look forward to yeah Um. so he said I'll pay for it like, look into it going to research it can you go out there with a group blah 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 uh, but but that became what I was going to do right uh, but obviously I go to Australia, my problems flew with me. Yeah. Uh, so the two years I was there, I just completely fucked up. Right. I didn't, I didn't do much traveling. I didn't see as many amazing things as I should have done. Uh, I just drank my way through it. And I was homeless for a good few months when I was out there. Uh, just kept running out of money. Bloody hell. I mean, and that's really from what? 20, 20 years old? 22, 23, out there. So, th- this is quite a wild ride so far. <laughs> so I have to keep coming back. We've not even like, talked about me throwing up yet. I know. We're not, <laughs> <laughs> like, we start off with the eating disorder. We've gone, all, we've gone to all sorts of places. But this is why I do this podcast, because I, I say it every time, you walk past people in the street and you've got no mm. idea of their life story. And I don't think they have... No. I don't think they have uh, an idea of how spectacular and sad and moving and interesting their life story is either. Mm. Um, and that's 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 why I, I love humans is because the, all the things that we focus on are the things that don't matter. These stories and yours so far is just like, wow, this young person is in Australia, is still obviously struggling with addiction and money and homelessness, but... Now you're on the other side of the world. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't get much worse. That, but it on paper it's such a great idea, isn't it? This yeah. will fix me. Yes, I will have the best time of my life. Everything's going to be great. But now I'm having the worst time of my life. Not necessarily the worst, but it's, so it far, was pretty shit. Yeah, um, and now I've got nowhere to live. But I am. Um, but I got off the streets. <laughs> I, I don't know how I I met a woman kind of I think it might be like sofa surfing couch surfing whatever it's called uh, and then she put me in touch with someone who just happened to be a drug dealer quite oh. quite a quite a big drug dealer uh, and I I he was gay and I think he took a liking to me so he kind of took me in under his arm nothing happened <laughs> uh, but like so I went from being homeless to living in like a penthouse apartment with him selling uh, MCAT meow meow 
yeah. on on Oxford Street in Sydney, which is like the gay street nightclubs. Yeah. And that was like my job for a good few months. And that's <laughs> Wow. God. But I wasn't I wasn't sleeping in the high park anymore, that's for sure. I mean so so yeah, so drugs actually enabled you to have a bed. Yeah. And to make money. Yeah. And this is the problem actually. I mean it's a very good point because the thing that can be your demise can also seem like your saviour. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a very confused... Not only are you becoming a version of yourself in the first instance that you feel more comfortable with, mm. but, you know, once you realise it's not the greatest thing, I'm losing money, I've got nowhere to live. Ah, actually, everyone, it is okay after all because here I am making my way back up. So it's this really... Well, it's an abusive relationship, isn't it? Very much so, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and one where I was always going to be the loser. Yes, <laughs> even though you think, yeah. again, it's that illusion, that false self saying you're in control, and you never are. It makes it worse. No. So you then obviously moved back to the UK. What made you move back? Uh, I was asked to leave. <sighs> okay, by by the Prime Minister of Australia who asked you to leave. Uh, no, the um, I got arrested. Mm. Uh, my visa ended after a year I was meant if, if I wanted to have a second year you'd have to do you know, like three months uh, of rural work fruit picking um, I didn't do that but I just stayed uh, got arrested so they figured out who I was and that I shouldn't be there um, but they don't they don't uh, deport you they give you a bridging visa and then say you need to find money to get a ticket home but you can't work oh <laughs> right so every two weeks I had to go back to the embassy to get a new stamp on my bridging visa and this went on for months so you basically can stay yeah it's a bit of a faulty system it's really strange they only deport people from inside the airport so if you've flown in and they kind of catch her and they say no you're, you're going back well that seems to I mean I don't know if you're listening to anyone from the embassy of Australia but if that's still the case you might want to sort yeah. it out <laughs> so yeah so I came back <laughs> Right, so you've been kicked out of Australia, yeah. um, and now you're back in the UK. Uh, how's your dad feel about this? Um, I, I I tried to surprise him. Uh, I, I didn't tell him that I was coming back. I got I sorted out a lift uh, from a family friend from the airport home, um, but he had found out that I was coming back, um, and he wasn't happy. He wasn't. He wasn't. Because all I'd done, as he knew, was piss it up the wall and repeatedly call him and say, Dad, can I have some money, please? Right, okay. Which was the, the most depressing, horrible phone call to me. You know, I hated it, hated it. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he... There was there was no there was nothing there in terms of he, he wasn't proud of me. I didn't go and fix myself or anything. You know, I came back and he was worried as well because like, I hadn't changed my ways, so am I still going to be... Coming home, pissed, like not knowing what mood I was going to be in, and uh, so he was obviously worried about that. But he, you know, he gave me a hug and he said that it, he he was it was good to see me, because mm. despite all of that, I'm still his son. Yeah, and he loves you. Yeah, and obviously he's scared, mm. and all sorts. Like it's tough, isn't it? Because you're watching your son self destruct. You mm-hmm. probably don't know why. Why is this happening? What have we done wrong? Yeah. Um. And you don't know what to do. 
so it's just awful isn't it for the parent but at the time you're so lost in it all like I said earlier about the Robbie Williams being lost in it all and just looking for something to escape to that we become very selfish but I think mental illness is selfish isn't it of course it, it is yeah you know, all of a sudden, you, when you're when you're really struggling, yeah, all you can think about is your woes, yeah, yeah, and, and you don't give a fuck about anything else around you. You can't because you, the survival kicks in. Exactly, exactly. And this is where, you know, you you are living in the addiction, but we haven't, you know, I, I referenced the eating disorder earlier being OCD, but the other thing about eating disorders is they really are an addiction. Mm. They they are the most difficult things to get out of because I think the chemical response in the brain um, and the hormones ghrelin and leptin and the way they help us to I can never remember which way, way round it is but I know when we eat we release a hormone I think it's ghrelin mm. which is one which signals fullness and I think when we're hungry we've got leptin which signals that we need to eat okay. but I think that from my understanding they can get very, um, they can misfire basically with eating disorders. So we no longer feel hungry. I think it's leptin. I think, sorry everyone if I've got this wrong, Google it. Um, I think leptin stops firing. So you stop being told that you're hungry. Right. Um, and then obviously the way that will impact the, the rest of the brain and the rest of the hormones, which is why girls with eating disorders will stop having periods, you know, it affects the whole system. But it becomes very addictive. And again, people don't do that for fun. They do that because they're, they're an addict of some and addiction is self-soothing escaping or avoiding so mm -hmm. at what point did it go from that guy who couldn't look in the mirror personal hygiene was now not a thing because you were just avoiding self where did you go from that to the eating disorder well that all happened that was all that that was towards the end that was right before i kind of got better so, so started that, getting better. right okay that moment was right at the end with the cemetery moment that we talked about yeah. we, we, we can go into that that's fine um the eating disorder was at his worst before i went to australia oh so that's already kicked in yeah yeah um and then when i was in australia that was it was i suppose it was, it was shadowed by the amount we were all drinking yeah and you go from hostel to hostel to hostel all just getting pissed in the evening and sleeping for most of the day yeah um so there wasn't really much time to eat. But were you consciously not eating then? Um, yeah, during yeah during the day I'd avoid it. And I remember waking up, I remember chatting one day to a group of guys uh, and they were talking about a McDonald's. And I said, I haven't had a McDonald's in years. And he went, you fucking had one last night? What? I felt like the world just like dropped because... I don't. I didn't remember. Still don't remember it. But apparently, I'd had like McDonald's the previous night when I was pissed. Right. Uh, and that that crucified me. Yeah. Knowing that I'd done that. Because you weren't in control now. I wasn't in control at all. No. No. So that's is that your first realization that food is now fear? Because before that, was it just like I'm avoiding it? I'm in control. It's fine. And then. I think when I was younger, so where I was playing so much sport, I had uh, had a long-term girlfriend through secondary school. Um, that, she was brilliant. She was lovely. I would not have passed my GCSEs if it wasn't for her. Aww. She was fantastic. Um, but I would walk to hers after school, have dinner, and then walk back home later on that evening and have something else to eat. So I was eating a lot. 
right but playing lots of sport yeah then i shagged my back um quite i I sprained my sacroiliac i was in a lot of pain um for a long time how old uh 16 when i did that oh god yeah that was shit um but i couldn't do as many sports but yeah i carried on eating the same yeah and i started putting on weight right so then like that fear was kind of stemmed from there yeah and it was easy just to not eat so you don't know how to lose weight at that age so no. you just think oh, i just want to eat yeah and then i'll lose the weight and then i started losing weight right so this is good that yeah starving myself has just got a positive reinforcement added to it were people saying that you look good as well yeah 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 it, that's the dangerous thing, isn't it? Oh, you look well, you look well. And then it gets to the point where people say, oh, you're not looking too good. You're not you eating gone. enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It goes quickly from you look well to you look awful. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the time you get to the you look awful bit, you're still, you're hooked, aren't you? Did anyone say yeah. you looked awful? No. No, because alcohol has got a lot of calories in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you were boosting. Yeah, so I was never, I was never scrawny or skinny. Uh, yeah. Um, because I was, I was still consuming a lot of calories. You, know, you just alcohol. weren't eating. I just weren't eating. So although you weren't, you were heavily into the addiction of food disorders, mm. and you were very obsessed with calories and avoiding food. Mm-hmm. Actually, you could disguise it because you were drinking so much. Yeah. So physically, you could disguise it. I mean. Yeah, and and I didn't realise that wine had calories in it. I didn't realise it was that calorific. Yeah. I mean, it, but it's second only to fat in terms of calories per gram. Yeah. Uh, and it's just poison. And it's just poison. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. socially acceptable poison. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it is, isn't it? And I, and I feel... It, it, I, I very rarely drink. Very rarely. Um, I, would, I would never say I'm, I'm, I don't drink, but mm. I very rarely drink. And when I do, my body just goes, nope. It does not like it. It's the acid response straight away, yeah, yeah. which is a good thing because it means I'm clean, as in not not externally. I am clean externally. I hope know? so. <laughs> she doesn't smell. <laughs> Thank you for confirming. <laughs> but it, internally, I think my body's so clean of it that if I put it in, it just goes yuck. Mm-hmm. Like, do not do that again. And I don't really enjoy drink. I, it's only more recently that I've decided it's a really terrible idea. Um, I, I wasn't drinking heavily or anything, but I just I just don't really enjoy the feeling of it. So I think it's an interesting conversation around alcohol because if you drink a bottle a night or whatever, you think everyone convinces themselves that it's okay, don't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, it's okay. It's just a little reward for a difficult day. Yeah. It's that sort of... But for you, it was, it was no longer a reward. It was no longer just escapism. It feels like it was just a way of life. Yeah, it became that way. Every every time something got a bit too heavy, that was straight to the straight to the booze shop. Free. What was too heavy at that point? Because I'm assuming there was a a scale of, you know, what is too heavy to to that age group when when you actually have no resilience. I, I guess mm. at this point, I, anything that I couldn't control, I guess, or anything that made me sad or made me feel vulnerable. Uh, so whether that was an argument or, or a breakup or, or whatever, anything that, that was kind of just out of my reach of just going fix. And let's not forget you'd already been given, um, as a 15-year-old, the diagnosis of BPD, EUPD, which is, as I said before, emotional dysregulation, the inability mm. to regulate emotion. So 
for those that listen and say, oh yeah, but come on, you know, what's wrong with you? Well, that there you go. He couldn't regulate his emotions. So alcohol was there to help you do that mm. in a really ineffective way. But it, But the problem is the brain goes, again, the false self goes, well, it's all right because it makes you feel so much better. You know, the long-term effects of it aren't being registered properly because no. the the effect of being able to escape that pain was always going to, which is what your brain's trying to do, escape pain and survive, is always going to override, yeah, but the next day, you know, it doesn't yeah, do that. Yeah, it just goes yeah. to the bit that seems effective, but in fact, it's maladaptive. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned there just very briefly, because we talked about it before we started to record, but you mentioned the cemetery. Mm. And you said something around the, you know, um, that was towards the end, you know, mm -hmm. not being able to look in the mirror. So you, at this point, you are just using alcohol as like a painkiller. I, it got to the point, it got to the point I was, I was so into whatever zone I was in. I was so lost there that I would smell the alcohol and would be gagging, I'd be retching. So I'd have to go to the sink, like a cup of alcohol, a cup of wine, I'd pinch my nose and just neck it back. Because if I could smell it whilst I was drinking it, I knew I'd throw it up and I just didn't want to throw it up because I needed that poison to carry on fueling me. Wow, that's pretty severe, isn't it? Yeah. And no food? Uh, I, th there was a couple of binges there and there was evidence of that in my kitchen because I just wasn't cleaning shit up. Yeah. Um, but there was so a short walk from where my flat was is it's still there it's a garage and they always had three bottles of wine for a tenner right. three bottles of vinegar of alcohol in yeah um and i went there i got some alcohol i bought a couple of packs of paracetamol as well uh and i had another pack of paracetamol and just behind that garage is a cemetery and quite a famous church in the area sort of a glass roof um and it was snowing, so it was bloody cold, and and I'd made the decision to take the take the paracetamol with a bottle of wine, in the hope that I would fall asleep and then not wake up. Yeah. And yeah, so I didn't necessarily want didn't necessarily want to die, but that was kind of the plan because then everything would end. You were looking for help, though, weren't you? I was, I was, but... But you but, didn't know how to do that? No, because I'd, cause I'd already fucked everything up. Yeah. And I'd kind of failed everybody, or I'd, or I'd kind of, they tried to help, and I'd slap their hand away. Um, did you think, because we, we did have a little chat, and I said something like, I think on the times that I'd attempted to do anything, it was just that I didn't have nobody, it felt like different for you, because people, I think, were trying to help, but I just felt like... Nobody understood. Nobody was trying to help. I felt like there was no other way that I could say I was hurting. Mm. There was nothing else I could do. Nothing else I said mattered. Um, so if I was, again, it's always tablets, isn't it? When it's mm -hmm. a, a failed attempt. Mm -hmm. um, tablets and as much alcohol or whatever as you can find. I, I just I just remember thinking, well, if, if this doesn't work, i.e., no one listens to me, then I'll fall asleep and never wake up, similar to what you said, and so yeah. the pain will end. So whichever way this goes, hopefully something good will happen. The pain will end, 
or someone will actually see what I need. Yeah. Um, and I think you were looking for the pain to end, but also hoping perhaps that somebody would find you and then you'd be taken somewhere where you could be fixed. Which I was. Yes. So what Which happened what happened then? Um so yeah, so I went to hospital, obviously I'd, I'd taken a lot of tablets. How did you get there? I flew. They were <laughs> special paracetamol. <laughs> Because you were in the cemetery with the snow, like a Hollywood movie. Yeah, yeah. And then I think you said earlier, no one came. And you were like, for fuck's sake, yeah. I'm being dramatic, guys. <laughs> Someone come and find me. But no one came. No. So how did you get from the cemetery to the hospital? How did that happen? I can't quite remember. So you were off I, your... I generally, I generally, I really can't remember. Um, but I know the dad took me to the hospital. Right. Um, and I know that I was in normal hospital for maybe a night uh drip monitoring blah 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 uh and then i was over to mental health hospital yeah uh, which was no longer it was the same um hospital my mum went to but oh they, they it was different wing they built a new build, building so it wasn't ward five of the edith cavell yeah it was a building right um so i was in there for 72 hour observation um and I felt good because I felt I was in that safe place before, right, this is where it starts happening. Yeah. This is where the doctors kind of like go, right, you need to do this, you need to take that, and and you'll be better. Because now you're, and, and forgive me, I do, I am crass when I talk about this stuff because I think it helps sometimes not to be too serious. But in that moment, you think, I'm kind of mad enough now that people understand I'm not just being difficult. Mm -hmm. I'm not just being an arsehole. I'm I'm literally mad enough to get the help that I need. It's the same as when I said that I felt relief when I got diagnosed when I was 15. Yeah. It is. It's like, good. Yeah. You can hear me now. Yeah. 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 I'm not just a difficult person. Yeah. There is something <laughs> wrong with me and now I'm going to get the help. So you're in there. Yeah. You're being monitored. Mm -hmm. What happens next? I uh, went in for a meeting on day three and they said... You know, I went from my notes and they said, look, you know, we agree with, with borderline personality disorder. We agree with bulimia. Um, have fun. But, you know, don't don't let the door hit your ass as you walk out. So you were released back into this awful, scary illness that you had yeah. been trying to escape. Yeah. And I will look that they, the, the nurses, the doctors there, they they didn't want that to happen because I was begging them for me to be sectioned so I could stay there for longer in this like comfortable safe place yeah and and be fixed while segregated from the world yeah yeah and then come out a new man yeah um and i could you know they didn't want to just say you know off you fuck yeah they, because you know that they're, they're doing their job for a reason they want to help people yeah um, although i have to say and i do agree with that on the whole i know lots of lovely nurses and doctors i truly do and i don't want to discredit the profession as a whole mm. but when it was my experience and i said to you earlier they didn't have enough people on the psychiatric team that night and they said if i give you this little brown envelope and you yeah. and you've got a letter in there for your gp will you give it to your gp and i was just like yeah of course i will so i took it ripped it up on the way out and and left and never took it to the gp because i was so deeply ashamed and i was mm. never going to go to the gp but i do remember the night being in the hospital um i remember a couple of nurses only a couple there were some lovely ones but they were tutting at me because I was wasting their time, you see. Now, I get it. I get it. Because actually, 
there are people out there that are in road traffic accidents, you know, serious injuries, they've been attacked mm. on a night out and they haven't got a lot of time. But when you are someone that is struggling with your mental health, y you are not able to be rational and you're not able to think, well, I shouldn't do that because if, you know, Edward has a car accident and breaks his leg, he's going to need that nurse more than me. Actually, what I needed then was someone to help me and they didn't, they packed me off because they didn't have the staff to cope. So I just think that that, that will never leave me, those two nurses like huffing and puffing and tutting at me. And I'd had a similar experience as a child when I self-harmed, I had to have some stitches removed and the doctor, Dr. Freeman from mm -hmm. the Crescent GP surgery many years ago, just calling you out, Angel. who knew my family history because he was also my dad's doctor and he knew what my dad had done. Right. He told me off for wasting his time because I was having mental health issues. We are going back 20 years. I wonder if Dr. Freeman is still alive. If you are, it wasn't a nice thing to do. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just felt like there were doctors and nurses at the time that were dealing with me that were just fed up with it. And, and I get it, like they're all overworked now, yeah. particularly. But it, it, it's, it's about saying that people that, and if you're someone listening, you don't get mental health. If someone is trying to make a statement, be it through what looks like a suicide attempt or a real suicide attempt, and I say real because some people genuinely just wanna die. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean to dismiss mine or yours, but we both agree that there was a way of communicating through yeah. that as well. Yeah. And if it had have worked, great, we we're asleep and that's fine. But I think that might get me into trouble, say real suicide attempt. I'm only talking about my own experience, but you know what I mean, there are those that, plan it out thoroughly and there are those that are reactive and those that are reactive were I think we are those reactive people um and I just think the doctors and nurses need to say look what is it that you need us to hear what is it that you need us to hear because you're trying to say something rather than tutting and huffing and puffing yeah. now I know in your case they really didn't want to just throw you out on the street and the system didn't allow no. for you to be there so the system failed you and you leave there that day desperate to, to for someone to help, but there's no help. So what on earth do you do with that? Not a lot, I carried on as usual. So you went straight back into it? Yeah, yeah. It was, it, but it wasn't, it wasn't long from then uh, until I said like, you know, enough is enough. I deserve more than this. That was a short, a short time. Um, but yeah, you, you, you go back to what you know, don't you? Yeah, you do. You know, that's you a, that's been the cushion that I do. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but I can't, I can't, I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be angry at anyone. I don't want to be angry at the the doctors for failing me. It was the system. Because on the flip side of that, I've had a, I had a car crash in the past and I was in a coma and very nearly died. Oh my God. But the doctors saved my life. Yeah, right? well, this is why I'm saying, you know, I do feel Physical, like mental. Yeah. <laughs> I do feel like they and and of course <clears throat> if you've been in a car accident you haven't chosen to be in a car accident. Generally, <laughs> unless you drink driving, which again, you know, but I've done that as well quite Yeah, a lot. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> it but you know in those situations I get it. I do understand why they get fed up with 
tablet overdoses. Mm. I do understand why they get fed up, but I just don't think that the person that's in that situation should know that they're, that you're fed <laughs> up with them. I just think you just need to say, what is it we can do to help? Yeah. That's it. Yeah. You know, we, we were so rushed off our feet, but we know you've got problems and we want to help, but we just can't. We haven't got the time. Yeah. That is all you need to say because that's like, okay, I get it. And I know that's a, it would be interesting to see if anybody emails in and says what their experience of being a nurse or a doctor is. Because I, I do understand working as a psychotherapist, the system, oh my God, it's so broken. And I, 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 I understand why they would be cross with people that abuse themselves. Yeah. When they just don't have the time for it. Kind of volunteering themselves. Into yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. But like you said, and and exactly what I needed, I needed help. Yeah. And it wasn't there. No. You needed that safe space. I needed someone to hear me because my own family weren't listening. And I just needed those doctors and nurses, I suppose, to play mum and dad for a little while. And they didn't. Yeah. In fact, they did exactly what my parents would have done, which is minimize it. Yeah. Which is yeah. why it's so damaging when it happens. But I think you um you put a post up a little while like a few weeks ago, uh, talking about the system, and I commented and I said like, if you look back for when the system started, mental health wasn't understood. Yeah. So the practices yes were brutal. Yeah. So it was broken from the start. Yeah, it was. Yeah. You know, yeah. So it's never been fixed. No, it hasn't. <laughs> and and you know even the training I think is still well even if you look at the training of um how we eat, mm -hmm. I suppose, uh, nutrition, yeah. it's still very heavily based on the average male. Yeah. So yeah. everything that was, and, and the education system, the health system, it's all still running off, um, you know, information that needs to be updated quite heavily. Yeah. And that's why, although I know this might be triggering for some people when I say stuff like that, because it could sound like I'm just sitting on my soapbox, it is because I want to see people having the broader conversation, whether it be in their living rooms or in their workplace, um, and understanding that you know my perception or perspective is only one of many, mm -hmm. and I don't expect people to just go, right, because Ella said. But I would like to see people going, well, yeah, stuff needs to change, really, it for does. everybody else. It does, but it's, I suppose if you kind of turn around to the government and say, look, this needs to change, this needs to change, the roads need to have less potholes in oh, them, please. Oh, God, yes, they you know, do. All these things, but where do you start? One of the things I said earlier, and I think it's really difficult for us to find this, um, this answer, and it's one of the questions that I've been asked a lot, like, how did you go from really, like, erratic, rageful, crazy, crazy stuff to just being this healthier version? Some might argue that after that previous conversation there <laughs> but the healthier version of yourself where you've got your life together is similar for you you just kind of went from right i am broken mm -hmm. to i'm going to do something about it yeah so what try and describe that few days or weeks where you were really broken and then you decided to change things up it was one morning when i woke up been out the night before and i woke up to uh the, the text messages um there was a girl that i was kind of seeing at the time that i like, met online uh i'd been out with her and her friends and she the one of the messages was from her saying that i'd just been awful to her friends i just met them uh but i got there drunk i've been drinking on the way there and, and yeah she, she said you were just fucking awful and i just thought right okay so 
I've kind of accepted that I'm allowed to be nasty mm. to my friends and family because they're the ones closest to me. They can take it. But all of a sudden, I've just been an asshole to just perfect strangers who are nice people. Yeah. And I've really shown myself up. like, And it was unfair. And I think that just kind of woke me up. Uh, wow. Yeah, so that was that. It was that day. That day, I said, "Right, no more drink, no more drugs, no more smoking." And that was it. That was it. You just stopped. Just stopped. Now I said something earlier. I was like, I really want to dig into that um, because it will be like people are going to go, "Well, that makes no sense." That's what people will think. I know. I know. But it makes no sense if you don't have a problem with emotional stability. And that's where I was like, oh, that's that's what it is. When you have, when your brain is adapted in such a way that it cannot regulate emotion properly, everything is all or nothing, isn't it? Yes. It literally is the most extreme of emotion yeah. or complete avoidance and nothing at all. Or not even the avoidance bit, but you can. You can completely avoid or you can be completely embedded in a, a, a situation. Uh, anything can become an addiction. Mm -hmm. Because anything becomes an escape or a self-soother. Yeah. And I think that where you are in that utter despair, you can also be a complete superhero for yourself as well. I, I mean, I know, uh, looking at my history and looking at yours, that the emotional instability bit is 100% accurate for both of us. And I was like a wild animal at times. Yeah, yeah. Genuinely a wild animal. In fact... You know, with you sort of saying that, that you were just able to snap out of it, I know for me, and I'm, I very rarely go into a lot of detail about this, but uh, when I was at the wildest, just talking about the EUPD, BPD, my behaviours were very reactive, rageful, uncontrollable. I mean, I can remember times where I was a self-harmer. And I can remember times where I would just want to, and I used to talk about it, I used to say, I just want to rip my skin off. I just want to rip my skin off. I felt so disgusted as well f with my body, actually. I was so disgusted. I don't know if that was a throwback from sexual abuse, but I was so disgusted. I used to see myself as, and again, I, I struggle with uh, body dysmorphia. Mm. I used to see myself as deformed. I used to think I was deformed, like I was so repulsive that I, I would fantasise, and this is trigger warning you might want to skip past this bit but i used to fantasize about chopping parts of my body off because i think well at least if i do that that will give me a reason to look disgusting so therefore you won't be able to say no it's just in your head <laughs> i know it sounds mental <laughs> because i've got my leg <laughs> yeah. i know it sounds mental but i used to be like you will i know i'm disgusting i know i'm awful i know i'm deformed and you keep telling me i'm not well you won't be able to say that anymore if i Chop off a boob. How you like me now. <laughs> yeah. It was really, like, that's how bad it was. Yeah. Like, I really genuinely would fantasise about doing this. And I'd play it out in my mind, like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And then they won't be able to tell me I'm wrong. Because I was so, that the reality was so warped. Mm. Um, and I was so out of my own mind. And along with that, again, with that emotional reactiveness, you know, I could have an argument with someone. And I, and I said to you earlier, anything that reminded me of not being seen or heard, anything that reminded me of not being 
paid attention to. And I know that sounds like, oh, she wants attention, but it would be something like, oh, I'm really struggling with my mental health. And, you know, say my mum would be like, oh, well, you'll just have to, you know, get on with it kind of thing. <laughs> if I ever experienced that, and I think I gave you the example earlier, if, say, if I wanted to do something and, and somebody didn't want to do it, I could become quite abusive to them, quite reactive. And I could be a monster. Mm. Like, I would, but I wouldn't want to be that. I, I would want to be... And this is the BPD or EUPD for people that don't really understand it. You could be triggered and unable to control that emotion in that moment. And I certainly had experiences where I would be considered abusive in that moment. It would have been reactive to a trigger. It wasn't because I wanted to hurt anyone. It wasn't because I was an abusive person per se, but I would react in a way that if you saw it, you would say, that person is abusive. I'm not proud of that, by the way, but I'm saying that that's how severe BPD can be. It's not just about, oh, I feel like sad today, so I'm going to have a drink. It's being triggered and losing control. Um, and I think that is the bit that people don't talk about. They don't talk about, they like to talk about their healing journey. Mm. Um, so I'm going to ask you some questions in a minute, just because I feel for people that have had that diagnosis, first of all, we're both sitting here is quite calm, I'd like to think relatively healthy, balanced people. Yeah. But we have both had the experience of BPD, EUPD. And for me, yes, I drank and yes, I self-harmed and yes, there were suicidal ideations. Um, and, I, and I wanted to rip my skin off and I had all these wild thoughts mm. of being deformed. And But there was also quite an abusive reaction from me at times as well. Uh, when you were drinking, when you were taking drugs throughout this period of time, would you say that that was something you experienced in yourself? Yeah, definitely. There was a couple of, looking back, there was a couple of toxic relationships there um, that under the influence of drugs and alcohol, uh, there were there were moments of, of abuse mm. on, 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 on both sides yeah. uh, sometimes. But yeah, there was the, the loss of control. Yeah. And it didn't, it, it, like you said, it takes that trigger. Yeah. Uh, fueled again by by drugs and whatnot as well. Um, it just it's just uh, a clusterfuck. Yeah, and uh, I think this is the thing, and this is where we need to. And I said to you earlier about, you know, I, I try and be as open as possible as a woman as well about the fact that women can be abusive. Mm. Um, there is often a trigger for that. I have been uh, again that reactive abuse is real. Um, I don't like talking about it particularly no. because people say well you you are an advocate for for abuse and i am <laughs> um and i wouldn't have been reactive and i wouldn't have had the uh the sort of emotional instability that i had had it not been for my own experiences but i think that we know that abuse breeds more abuse now you weren't abused but you did witness your mum's um collapse of self mm -hmm. due to her experience of being bullied and abused you were bullied yourself actually as well weren't you yeah. so you also have that and I've, I've always said this and I've said it many many times and I'm going to say it again to give context to the reactive abuse thing when it comes to my dad and I talk about this a lot because I, I like to try and be educational when we talk about these things my dad was sexually abused once I think by a man in a park um, in Paisley, Renfrewshire, Paisley, I think it was at the time. And he was left in this park and his older brother found him. 
he had to go and identify this man that did this, you know, because yeah, right. as a as a little boy, yeah, he's never told me this. This is my mum had told me this. Um, he had to go, and and then at the time you couldn't, and I know it to be true because his older brother has confirmed. His older brother's now dead, but it did confirm it. Um, he had to go and identify face to face. There was no like two way mirror, and then my dad's seventy five now, so then. He was brushed under the carpet, never mentioned yeah. again. Now, what the brain does to protect us is it will use escape routes such as addiction, OCD, those kind kind of things. But it also develops parts of us, and we'll all know these parts: the inner critic, the perfectionist, the controller, the anxious part, the angry part. All these different parts live within our head, and they all serve a different purpose. I fully believe that the part of my dad that was abusive was trying to protect the victim that he'd been from being the victim ever again. And I felt like when I went into that reactive abuse mode, if someone triggered me and I lashed out mm. and became the wild animal, the monster, I felt like that wild animal monster, if I was to observe it, was trying to protect the victim in me, the bit that felt helpless and weak and unloved and uncared for. And so it stepped up in front of me. And, and I think... I never understood that fully until I became a therapist and I carried so much shame over being this wild psychotic. And I use these words because that's how I felt. Like I said, I wanted to rip my own skin off. I was so angry and I was so angry. I was so angry that no one cared. I was so angry that no one listened. Mm. I was so angry that I was so out of control and it didn't feel fair. And that might sound really self-absorbed, but... I know that although your story of getting to where you got to was slightly different, witnessing what you witnessed, it wasn't fair that you had to go and see your mum in that situation in hospital. It wasn't fair that people were hurting your mum and you couldn't help her. It wasn't fair that that little boy's growing up feeling like maybe he's a little bit to blame for it or feeling like the only thing that he can control is being perfect. It's not fair that people bullied you it's not fair that the only thing that seemed to work was alcohol and drugs to take you away from that pain mm. and so that protector part that comes out in toxic relationships is trying to protect you and we carry so much shame around it nobody wants to talk about it because it feels like the the biggest taboo to well, be especially not a man yeah because if you say yeah actually i've i've lashed out in ways that would be considered abusive you're scared of what people will think. Yeah, yeah, and that's why I haven't spoke about it as yet. Yes. Um, but it has been something I wanted to speak about because yeah. that, that is part of, of my story and it's telling my story that I want to do to, to help people. Yeah. Uh, but like we, we talked about it earlier when I got emotional because it's, it's, it's painful that I was capable of going there. Yeah. But when you describe it as the monster being the protective aspect of that yeah I, I know exactly what that means because my kind of conscious my my calm self is back here yeah. watching things happen yeah kind of not believing that it's happened yeah even though it's coming from my body yeah uh but yeah it's, it's been every every day every other day it's something i think about it's something i'm ashamed of yeah that that it's happened I can't change it. That's the worst thing. Yeah. I can never I can never go back and make that right. Well, talking about it now is making it right in some way because it's admitting as as I have done that the way that we we reacted wasn't adaptive. It wasn't efficient. It wasn't healthy. <laughs> yeah. 
it didn't do us any good. And what what you're doing actually by by admitting that is if anyone's listening that has got an addiction, be that to alcohol, drugs, or maybe food or whatever, they feel completely out of control. They might hear a bit of themselves in you, and they might say, "Oh God, yeah, that argument I had with my girlfriend and my boyfriend where I lashed out." I don't want to hurt anybody. Mm. Uh, it might be the thing that makes them say, I need help. And and that's how you, you can't change it, but you can do something useful with it. And you never know who needs to hear it. Mm. We, you see, society does this thing. As you know, I've just done the podcast with George Roberts, mm-hmm. who was on the telly, and he got publicly accused of being an abusive person, unfounded. Mm-hmm. And there I am interviewing him and be like, this is terrible you've been accused of this. Whilst I also know that at times if you'd have looked through a window and seen me, you'd label me the abuser. <laughs> and I know that for George, he didn't do anything. But the way society labels people and goes, well, you're an abuser. You're a bad, narcissistic, horrible person. He showed me some of the messages he'd got from people and they were yeah. calling him cunt face, narcissistic, this. You're proof of what a narcissist is. Actually, my behavior in that reaction was narcissistic. My behaviour in that reaction was textbook narcissist for for a, a period of time, be that a day, a month, a week. Um, I wasn't personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder. I was actually more BPD. But yeah. you see that there are crossovers in these person. But we've got to go back further. We have to look at the root. We have to look at the brain's development. We have to look at the first seven years and then... The fusion of the prefrontal cortex doesn't happen until 21. So from 7 till 21, all those things that happen are built on the foundation of the first seven years. Mm -hmm. But then that foundation, if it's rocky, what's learned after that is going to sit on rocky foundations. And so we're trying to fix it. We're trying to fix the foundations from the top, you know, by (laughs) drinking and out and all this. And we never get there. And then, you know, that, that reactive abuse is like a seismic shift where where oh my gosh here we go there's the volcano it's not it's not safe anymore that like like uh, an earthquake that seismic right gone too late and it, it is very much about being out of control which is why i keep referencing it you know those emotionally unstable people are out of control for a reason and we can vilify them mm-hmm. and we can look at the justice system and say well the law says but yeah but it isn't black and white. No, it's not. Um, and what you think are bad people are sometimes really hurt, scared, fearful people. And what you think are good people are sometimes really good at hiding it. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is there's no way of deciding who's abusive and who isn't. We can look at behavior and we can say that's abusive behavior. But are you an abusive person or are you a hurt person? Because if you're hurt... Let's look at that and let's try and fix it. Yeah, it was yeah, definitely the hurt. I I've tried to kind of reason with it myself uh, by using the analogy of a, a dog trapped in a corner. Yeah. With anxiety, with issues, and there's people approaching him. Yeah. Reaching out for him, and they're not reading the dog's body language. Yes. But they so they keep trying to grab. Yeah. So the dog's got no choice but to bite. Yeah, it's true. Protecting itself. Yeah. And I think from what you told me about your situation, which we won't go into great detail, um, with where you would have been reactive, you were lashing out as a reactive 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, you might have been in a situation where somebody was also very reactive. So you were in, like you said, it was a very toxic situation. But you've probably, well, I know you've definitely carried a lot of shame over that part of yourself. And earlier, before we started to record, you referred to it as a previous life. And I say, it's not a previous life, it's this life. You've got to stop trying to say, this is me now, this is me then. It's always been you. Mm. It's just that you are a definitely a more healed, balanced version of you. Um, but actually, someone who realizes the power of being completely authentic as well, which is rare. We, we hear the word authenticity a lot, but who's truly being authentic? You have been today. Mm. You, we don't need to know all the details just because there's other people involved and yeah, sure. we don't want to, to do that. We don't want to um, cross any privacy boundaries. But I think, you know, I think you're very well aware of the reactive abuse and how that might have affected other people and all of those things. And the fact that you've been authentic um, about it will will enable people to see their pain and their anger in a very different way, I think. I hope so. That would be a lovely positive to come out of what was nowhere near a positive. So. Well, I just want to recap, right? I want to recap here and say, here's a young boy witnesses some stuff that's very painful, ends up adapting, well, maladaptive development around that painful stuff, by the age of 15, BPD, uh, antidepressants, university struggle, mm -hmm. come home, heavy on drink and drugs, heavy into an eating disorder, go to Australia, doesn't work out, come back, you know, suicide attempt, doesn't get the help you need. There's a moment where, again, with that all or nothing kind of BPD thought process, that's it, I've had enough. I'm going to flip the switch. <laughs> and that's exactly what you did. You yeah. flipped the switch. Very similar to what I did. I think I was so ashamed, which is what you were saying there. You was yeah, like, yeah. oh, God, I can't keep doing this. It was just like the rock bottom time to flip the switch. So you flipped the switch. And actually, as I mentioned right at the beginning, you've got this, f I'm going to use the word phenomenal, Instagram page which I, I I reference this sort of like foodie, you know, this real sort of arty foodie thing you've got going on. But you kind of made food your best friend. Yeah. Well, after all of that. Food's always been my best friend. I've always loved food. Uh, I, I, you know, I still remember the day my dad gave me my first real knife. Yeah. It was only a little, little tiny blade. Uh, but my job was to top and tail the uh, Mange 2 or whatever. Um I've always loved food. I've always loved cooking. I've always loved creating because it is. It's like lots of ingredients for me is the same as uh, lots of paint colours for an artist. Yeah, you know that that's my creative outlet. Yeah. Uh, so I've always loved food. I just uh, never had a love relationship with it. Yeah. Wow. So it's 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 interesting you say that because. You avoided the thing that you loved, so it was really punishment. Yeah. Well, yeah look, starving yourself, um, sticking your fist down your throat so you could throw up, you know, that's there's nothing, there's nothing loving about that. that. That's all kind of negative, isn't it? That, that's, yeah. just, that's just going to be punishing yourself. And do you think, although the alcohol and the drugs might have been 
allowing you to find that confidence and be a part of yourself you couldn't find and you said you hated yourself earlier at points um did you was this all self-punishment was this because you blamed yourself for anything i think a lot of it was to do with control um because of other issues that we haven't actually covered or talked about today but i think there was other things leading into my belief that I had no control over yeah. me. Um, there was the the social input, you know, I needed to look perfect, I needed to be as popular as I could be. Yeah. Uh, there was the bullying as well. Yeah. I just started putting on a bit of a bit of weight when I stopped playing sport, and p people were calling me fat and whatnot, uh, which may have been brushed off on other people, but I was. I was emotionally unstable. Yeah. So that really kicked me in the balls. Yeah. Um, so there was, I think there's a lot of things around it. Um, from from a, from a mental side of things to a physical side of things, it was all. I said the word before, but clusterfuck. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of different ingredients, so yeah. to speak. But then with the all or nothing mentality, when it came to to throwing up, like. I, I would go and go and go and go and go until like, I'd almost collapse or there was I felt good if I got a bit of stomach line and come up because I thought right it's empty yeah so that was a good indicator of yeah. I've completed the job properly yeah. and then you know the other things that people don't think but will know about bulimia is the embarrassment if someone asks you why you got blisters on your hand yeah you know yeah. or if you if you walk out of a toilet from being sick and you you haven't dried your eyelashes properly, yeah, are you all right? Have you been yeah. crying? Yeah, no, I haven't been crying. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and I'm still suffering today uh, with my digestive system because of the amount of laxatives that I that I use. I used to abuse laxatives like they were Smarties. I was still struggling with my gut trying to recover. From yeah. That. So what do you do to for those that have gone through the laxative thing? What do you do to try and get that healthy microbiome back eat good food yeah just a balanced colorful diet uh, yeah and just you know, the doctors have said to me it might be another year might be another 10 years there's no real telling you know, i take probiotics and whatnot i'm doing all the good things mm -hmm. uh but it's just a waiting game now and look, from from where i was at, at deepest deep deepest darkest depths uh to having a bit of a weird gut every now and then. Yeah. I'm all right with that. <laughs> yeah, that I mean, it's phenomenal because your skin shows, you know, you've obviously, you work out now, you look after your body now. Um, you're obviously in a much more productive state yeah. for your overall health. But we did say before, and, and I know this, you know, with food, there's such an embarrassment talking about it. Um, even as... I say even as a girl, it shouldn't be a gender thing, but it, it is, isn't it? People don't talk about it much if boys don't talk about food much. But I still, people that know me know that I, I mean, I spent years making up excuses around food. Mm. Do you want to come out for dinner? Oh, I've had I've had lunch at work. I've had a big lunch. I'll just, I'll just come and have drinks. And I'd have like the Diet Coke so there was no calories. I'd be like, yeah. okay. And I, I would live off like 500 calories, 800 calories. 800 calories was pushing it. Like, if I was eating 800 calories, I was not doing well. I was tiny, and I thought, you know, I can remember being 
I was get I was so thin I had to go to H and M Kids to buy clothes. Bloody hell. Yeah. Um, luckily I'm short. I've got my heels on today, but I'm five foot two, and so I could get into eleven year old clothes, and I I felt proud of that. Right. I was like, great, yeah. I'm wearing eleven year old clothes. That means I'm a bit like your stomach lining thing. Yeah. I'm doing really well. If I can get into a ten to eleven then I'll be doing really good. And I did. I managed to get into some clothes, T-shirts and stuff for 10-year-olds. Even now, your terminology just then, I managed to get yeah, into Yeah, yeah. Completely that Freudian subconscious thing there. Yeah, yeah. It, it really... And I think if I'm being honest with you, and I'm going to be completely honest, I'm still proud of it. Really? Yeah. I'm still proud of it because as much as that sounds really terrible to say that, I work with people that have eating disorders, mm-hmm. I know that that's wrong to feel that way but there's a part of my brain that still says that is how dedicated you are and the difficulty that I have now is that I know that that's wrong to Mm. feel really good about achieving getting into the clothes for a 10 year old I know that's terrible but equally I know that there's a part of me the all or nothing Mm -hmm. if I say I'm going to do something I'm going to do it it, (laughs) and what I've done is I've flipped that and I've turned it into a career that you know, I'm very proud of. Um, and I don't have to be like, oh God, I feel terrible admitting this, but I'm really good at being a psychotherapist. I don't have to, but that's the truth of it. <laughs> that's the really, you know, that's, that's the truth of it. I am really good at what I put my mind to. Yeah. Um, and I think for the people that are struggling with eating disorders or OCD, which I've had both of, and they're both really the same thing. Mine was with germs, the OCD, but eating disorders are a form of that and addictions and all that I've, I've had all of those things is that you can turn it into something really really beautiful if you want to um and i just want to say that that there will always be a part of me that 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 lives on in my head that is proud in a very perverted way of being good at having an eating disorder The problem with that is, and I'm going to caveat this just so that people know that it's not a good thing, is that now, if I can't get into a clothes size, I will also go through the torment of, right, well, there's something wrong with me then. I still have to have that conversation with myself where I have to step away and go, Ella, like, it's okay that you're no longer this size or that size. It, It doesn't matter anymore. And then I'll just move on from it and I can do that, but it still comes into my mind. And I have to be careful with, you know, <clears throat> becoming obsessed with certain things because I know I still can be. Yeah, yeah. And I say all of that really to give you permission to be able to say, you know, the authentic leftovers that you have when it comes to your food issues. People seem to think, but I think where where people think that eating disorders are just a physical thing. Yeah. Um, I, I did have someone say that they think that everyone's got a bit of bulimia in them because they thought that because they thought that everyone wanted to eat nice food but still be skinny. Right. So that okay. that was that level of understanding. Yeah. Um. So, but they don't. You know, when I say I'm I'm always going to be. Yeah suffering with an eating disorder well it's like a recovering alcoholic absolutely you're always a recovering person with well recovering eating disorder addict really yeah, yeah. you're always going to be that yeah so and hard because you've always got to eat 
I've always got away, but I I enjoy my food now. And like yeah. where I used to need to convince myself for a year to take the next step in that, I hate using this term, but journey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, it, now it takes like a week maybe. Yeah. Uh, and like I said to you earlier, now I'm now eating more calories than my body actually needs so that I can get bigger at the gym. Yeah. And that means losing some of my definition. And that has always been the way I determine how healthy I am. Always. By your definition. Always been the six pack. Right. So that's a bit of a trigger. It's not a trigger. It's something that's just taken me about three years to accept. Right. Okay. (laughs) So to bulk up. You need to get a bit fluffy. Yeah. But why do you want to bulk up? Because again, I know that with most people, and I've been, I'm very balanced with my gym now, but I used to be obsessed with Mm -hmm. running, going, I've done it all. Running was a big addiction for me until I tore my meniscus and I could no longer run. Um, But I do short runs, but not very often now. Um, Gym was that I've got to go and I've got to do this much and I've got to go for this many hours. Now it's a very balanced, I am healthy, but I'm not on the journey of trying to achieve anything because it always does trigger me. Okay. It always does trigger me. I always get like, oh, I can't do it, you know, because I want to be good at everything. Yeah. Which is ego-based. We know that's ego-based, but it's also illness-based. So the two can entwine and become a problem. All the people that I know that are bodybuilders or bulking up or shaping up, they've got a pain in the past. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm actually noticing similar correlations. Uh, Tattoos. Yeah. Creative people. Yeah. And and like fragile minds. I think there's there's a definite... Yeah. um, but why I want to bulk up, I go to the same uh, gym as Jimmy, James. James Elliott, yeah, so a it, previous guest yeah, so and all-round legend. He's an absolute legend, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's a big boy gym. And you know, I started going there and I was happy just to go there and, and lift weights and then leave and, and feel good about myself. But some of these guys are absolute machines. And I think I'm progressively lifting more. Yeah. But I'm not getting any bigger. How did you get big? You know, yeah. So that's when I started researching into that, into bulking. Yes. Where I've never researched into bulking. Yeah. I've always researched into how being slim and cut and blah blah blah. Um. So yeah. So I, I guess it's a new challenge for me as yeah. well. It's something else I need to be good at. Yeah. Well, this is what <laughs> I was saying, and I think it's okay if you can. I mean, I can. I don't. To be honest, I don't have a lot of time to do it. Maybe if I had more time. Uh, there was a point when I was going to go into the, uh, it wasn't going to be serious competitions, but there's a, I don't know if you've heard of the Glifting Girls. No. They're like a real glamorous um, competition where you do your gym work and then you go up with a bit like Victoria's, uh, Victoria Rain, is it the Victoria Angels? Where they get these big costumes and you're in a bikini and you walk down with your big angel wings I don't on. Know what TV programs you watch, but can you let me know what time they're on? <laughs> Usually after midnight, obviously. Sure. <laughs> no, but the Glifting Girls—they're very glamorous. They go to the gym, but there's all different categories, like the weight loss category and the fitness category and the yummy mummies category and all that uh, sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah. And I was going to go for the the gym category um, over a certain age group, right. and then COVID hit and it just didn't happen. And then I thought, actually, I. I don't have the time and I think this could become a bit too much for my, it could trigger my old. Get sucked into Yeah. Yeah. And also I was scared to to eat all the calories at the time because my trainer, lovely Kathy, was saying to me at the time, she was going, you're going to have to, 
you know, you're going to have to up your calories. And I was still very low calories at the time. Um, And once I got my head around it, COVID hit. So it was just, I just thought there's too much against this. The timing's not right. And I've never, and from there, I just think I'm, I'm trying to embrace a more balanced, just do it because you enjoy it, not because you're trying to actually get to a goal. But that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with getting to a goal, of course. But I do know that for some people, even going to, I mean, I used to have terrible, I still do a little bit. I think everyone does gym anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, because you would always, well, I would always be thinking, well, I'm too fat to do this. I'm too unfit to do that. Mm-hmm. What if people are watching me? But then you realize the only reason you think that is because you're judging other people. Yeah. That we're all judging each other. But, I, but I've always, I've said this for a while now, I don't think being judgmental is a bad thing. No, it's not. I think it's a basic survival instinct. Yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> but that's why we're all so scared of being judged. Because yeah. we're all judging ourselves. Like, we're not judging ourselves. We're judging everybody else and ourselves. But if if that that's the point. It's like, well, the reason you're worried about them looking at you like that is because guess what? That's how you looked at someone else. Yeah. So you've got to just accept that everyone starts somewhere. I mean, even when, when you write a book, when you put out a video post, mm-hmm. when you go to the gym, when you go for a run, when you put on your eyeliner for the first time as a 12-year-old girl, it ain't going to be as good as when you do it again and again and again. And so you just have to own it. Like, walk in and just be the Wally. Just admit, I'm I'm, I'm the gym Wally. I've never done this before. And ask for help. Own it. Get a t-shirt with gym twat on it. <laughs> yeah. I think if you just admit it, don't try and be something you're not. Because this is where we all feel so embarrassed because we're trying to style it out like yeah i know what i'm doing and before you know it you know the thing's falling on your head and you're in a and e with a terrible injury (laughs) because you in fact don't know what you're doing and i think if we all just embrace that like okay i'm not good at this i need to be out because actually in gyms depending on the gym people will help if you go mate how the hell are you doing it? They will help you, won't they? But people love that. Yeah, they do. Because, you know, you're, you're asking for their expertise, their yeah. opinion. Yeah. And that kind of, that's positive to them. He's chosen me. Yes. Out of all these people, he's asked me yeah. to do it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a good way to build rapport, friendships and whatnot as well. It is. Are you good at asking for help, though? Because yeah. being a perfectionist, I would imagine that's always been a bit of a struggle because you want to be the perfectionist. Yeah, no, I, that used to be an issue. Yeah. But... Not at all now. So you're quite open to being vulnerable. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, and 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 I, if I'm shit at something, I take the piss out of myself and I'm like, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm shit at this. Someone else needs to do this for me. Or, yeah. Um, I, I'm never, I'm never ashamed to hold my hand up and say I'm wrong. I'm never ashamed to hold my hand up and say I need help. Yeah. Not a problem to me at all now. Well, that's really powerful because I think. If you'd have been in that place, which you couldn't have been, you had to learn to get to that place. That is all we ever need to do. I'm wrong and I need help. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Um, But one kind of final question on that. Would you have accepted the help? Because I think you said earlier your mum and dad did try to help and you battered it away. Why do you think you battered their help away when you were probably in the, the most need? Denial. Yeah. Shame. Yeah. Uh, rage. Yeah. All of the above, really. There was. Yeah. I think, no matter what you're suffering from, the one person that needs to help you is you. Yes. You can only truly heal yourself right? yeah. from the inside out, regardless of of how you go about it. 
you heal yourself. Yeah, it's true. Um, and I wasn't ready, I guess. So I, I, I just said no to, to any kind of olive branch. Do we then have to accept... Um, I kind of know the answer to this, but I want to hear yours, that there are times when we have to go through... Uh, uh, you know an immense amount of psychological physical pain to be able to come through it and get to the other side I th yeah I, th I think that people that have been through real shit like I, I don't get pissed off by the small things in life I'm very calm yeah. I, I, I see people flapping about the most ridiculous things and, I'm yeah. just, and it just I'm just neutral to it yeah you know because it just doesn't matter yeah uh, so yeah, I th but I, but I only feel that way because I've I've been in them dark places and through those shit situations and put myself in some really weird situations yeah. as well. Um, so I suppose you become a bit immune to the mundane day to day, and it's called resilience, which is what James talks about. It's a, it's a very popular word at the moment. It's a very it? popular word, and to give it a bit of a wider context, because the problem is when something becomes a tag word, it gets a bit watered down and diluted yeah, yeah. and it becomes a bit like oh boring she said resilience again yeah it is a bit <laughs> ick cringe switch off um but what it means is it's like i gave birth without pain relief and i'm i'm always really proud about that because it, apparently it's painful i've heard <laughs> <laughs> it is painful so, we've heard it too <laughs> Yeah. A lot. Over and over again. <laughs> no, but it's really fucking painful. And I broke my leg in three places as well. And I can tell you, apparently they're the two of the most painful things. I'm here to tell the story. Sure. So I can tell you I know a little bit about pain. But the point is, because I did it, I now have that as a benchmark. Right. So whereas before something might have been like, oh God, I can't do that. It's going to be too painful. Now I'm just like, I gave birth without pain relief. Leave the room, I've got this. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. And I genuinely, uh, uh, and I don't know if this is just naturally in me, wired, I'm not scared of anything. No. Like, I literally, I have to be careful in case I am scared of something and I've just forgotten. But if I am scared of something, I've forgotten. I'm not scared so of anything. So you're not scared of it then? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't think I'm scared of absolutely, not anything. And I do think that's because, similarly to you, there's been so many different things, some of which I've forgotten about, I'm sure, that I've faced. That, And and actually, I've got to say that, that it was recently that I recalled an incident that I'd forgotten about, which was actually really traumatic and horrific, which I will not say today because it's too graphic. But I, I absolutely know that there is nothing that could happen where I wouldn't be able to cope. I, I, I guess the only thing that would be a real, real struggle is watching somebody else suffer. Yeah. That is the only thing I would really struggle with because that is, and certainly if it was my child, but watching somebody else suffer or an animal suffer is the only thing that I really don't have much of a resilience for. Yeah. I think that's where we've got to really try not to overprotect our kids. Don't try and give them the perfect life because they're not going to learn how to cope no. with the, the bigger things in life when they happen. And I guess that's why everyone talks about resilience now is because it seems to be trying to get the message across that we've got to have some pain. Yeah, yeah. Do you think, though, 
that you perhaps had a bit too much pain or not? No. Really? You think that you think that was what I, you I don't I don't think it was the appropriate amount of pain. No. <laughs> but I think that had it not been I mean a lot of a lot of very different things have happened. Like we we've touched on like a few of them. They're very all over the place. Yeah. Um but I wouldn't be sat here. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to potentially help other people suffering, other men with eating disorder. I wouldn't I wouldn't be as strong as I am today. I so I'm not I'm not angry about anything that happened. I'm kind of almost thankful for it to yeah. have happened. Yeah. Uh, but I can only say that because I came out the other side and, and I've really kicked my ass into gear. Yeah. Um but yeah, I it's one of those things I wouldn't change it. So with that being said, knowing that you've you've had to go through that in order to be where you are now, mm-hmm. knowing that you are able to use it to be of some kind of education or support, help, even maybe a signpost in some way, shape or form for someone else that's going through something similar. Um, what If there is someone listening that's got eating disorders or, or, or even addictions, what do you want them to take away from listening to you today? It's difficult, isn't it? Because everyone's different. I just think that we need to look at our perception on things, how we view different situations. Yeah. Uh, especially when it comes to that escapism, because is, is it my my little thing I say now is make decisions today that make that will make you happy tomorrow. Yeah. And if you do that every day, then your tomorrow will always be happy. Yeah. 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 And, and I spent years not doing that. Yeah. So don't make the same mistakes as me. Yeah. <laughs> Try and le- learn from the story. Yeah. And but also reach out. There's so many people that that you can talk to now. Yeah. And and no problem is 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 stupid. No problem is too small. It, if something's affecting your mental health, you just need to go and talk about it. Yeah, it's true. Um, and it's also about knowing that, as we spoke about today, that there is a reason that people are the way they are. You know, we think of mental health as something that's almost well, you've got mental health and that's kind of it. Mm-hmm. But actually, if you trace back the development of the child the incidents that happened, the way that would have affected physically the structural elements of their brain, what that then means in terms of the emotional regulation or indeed other areas of the brain that might be affected, um, you might not feel like you're struggling with emotional dysregulation. You might just feel anxious all the time Mm -hmm. and you might not be, you know, talking to anyone about that, but your amygdala, your danger tracker might be switched on. I had a girl the other day just very quick, brief little story. She's got various different things going on, but we traced her history, abandonment issues early on, dad left, um, difficult relationship. She was groomed at about 13 by an older man, thought it was a real relationship, didn't realise it was a kind of like a paedophile thing. Um, but there was something I wasn't quite getting. There was just like this little bit. And so I set her about 10 questions to ask her mum. And I was asking about her birth. So what happened during the birth? What was happening during the mum's pregnancy? All these different things that could have affected the fetal development. Mm-hmm. Anyway, nothing came out. And then she went, oh, there was one thing my mum said. She said that the cord was wrapped around my neck when I was born. And she went, that's probably nothing, no. But it was one of the questions. I went, no, 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 that's really important because 
if the cord is wrapped around your neck, you're being strangled at the point of birth. Yeah. The amygdala in the brain, which is the danger tracker, will switch on and it'll go, I'm going to die. Before you're, you're born. Before you've even properly been born. On the way out, you're being strangled. Your first experience of life is near death. Now, I'm not saying conclusively that that would mean that you would have generalised anxiety. But if you add on dad leaving, not being interested, then being groomed later on, one affects the other, affects the other, affects the other, affects the other. Trigger stacking. Exactly that. So understanding all those different points about yourself, it releases you a bit like the BPD, although actually I think they could have gone more broadly into that and really educated you about yourself, which may have actually been helpful at 15 to understand all the, the dots, right? Yeah. And to be able to go, wow, actually I'm quite amazing. Like all these different things have happened to me. My brain's developed this way, but it's not my fault. So mm. here are the things I can do. And I think, you know, I think that is what I want people to take away from listening to your stories. Look at where you are now. The same things that could have broken you have actually been been your superhero too. And so you can flip it. You can flip the switch. Dr. Esho was on... on um, fantastic Fantastic guy. guy. Yeah. I love Dr. Esho so much. I'm a bit like, I am in love with that man. He's so, fan so phenomenal. But he spoke about a code switch. And I've used that ever yes. since. I said I was going to steal it, and I yeah. have. I've kept to my word, and I have stolen it, and I've used it a lot. And the code switch is what you've done. Yeah. You've gone from code destruction to code power. And I think that is what I'm trying to get across with everything that I'm saying now. Understand how you got to where you got to, despite the label or not. Hmm. You don't have to have a label to understand that. Then if you go, right, all of that means that I've been damaged and hurt and all of these things, but I'm really good at the all or nothing thing. So what can I focus on? You know, it's helping people find their power. And I'm hoping that's what people take away from this episode. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. I really want to thank you because you've gone to some places that I don't think you thought you were going to go to when on the drive here. No. <laughs> and I, I kind of encourage you to do that. And I wanted you to feel safe to do that. And I hope you do. Yeah, I do. And I hope you understand how powerful what you've done today is. I know you've spoken about eating disorders before, but I really feel like you gave us a really broad perspective of your life and you were very authentic and vulnerable within that. And that will be extremely powerful for lots and lots of people. Um, and I really want to congratulate you on that because that is difficult to do. Yeah, it wasn't easy. No, I know. <laughs> I know it wasn't. And I know that people just listen to these stories and think, oh, wow, what a great guy. They won't know how scared you were doing it. No, but you do. Yeah, I do. How do you feel at the minute? Fine. I feel good. Good. At least it's not the other, which could be, actually, I feel dreadful. I never want this episode to be heard by anybody. No, no. I, I, like I, I've said this before and I'll keep saying it, like, I will keep talking. Yeah. The more people that hear, not not my stories, like I'm, it's not like an amazing story or anything. Um, well, it, it is actually. But I think there's so much in it that that people can relate to. Yeah. And if they can do that, and if that helps them, then I've done my job. Yeah. Inverted commas job. As a human, as a fellow human. Yeah. yeah. You've contributed to society in a really powerful way. Yeah. And I've got to say. I want people to get, follow your Instagram. Like, and I want you to cook for me as well. I'm like, your food, and I've, I'm, full disclosure, I actually was vegan for a while and it made me very ill. I didn't realise it was making me ill until I was just exhausted. Um, 
recently, then I went to vegetarian again and now I, I eat meat and you know, there's a lot of people that don't know that yet, friends and stuff that think I'm still vegan and I'm not. I eat meat again and I've never been healthier. Like it was a really, I didn't realize how unhealthy I was until I got to the point of eating meat again and I feel so much better, I can't tell you. Well, like, I like, I respect anyone for their eating, eating um, choice, the way yeah. they want to live their life, absolutely doesn't bother me at all. Yeah. But we have, yeah. we have canines. Yeah, I know, it's a really, I I stopped because of animal abuse. Sure, yeah. Um, and I saw a video. I know I keep digressing on this episode, which is really quite funny, but <laughs> I I saw a video. Uh, I was looking on YouTube for something. It was an animal aid video. They're a charity. Mm-hmm. And it was about, it was a UK farm slaughterhouse. Yeah. And the animals, um, I think there were sheep in this instance. The animals were being beaten like punched and kicked by the the workers and see it was hidden cameras and then there was slaughterhouse videos and the animals were watching each other being slaughtered and stuff and i was just like i i i can't be a part of this this is absolutely horrific and then of course i went down the rabbit warren of all the different uk unfortunately slaughterhouses and the hidden cameras and the abuse and the way that and I just felt like this is the most disgusting barbaric thing I've ever seen in my life these animals don't have a voice I've got a voice I can talk about what's happened to me yeah, they yeah, can't yeah. and it, it just put me off I couldn't and it was a really probably about 16 years that I didn't eat meat at all because I was so affected by it and then I've, I like I say I got really poorly I was exhausted all the time I was not well and I had to understand what was going on. Mm-hmm. Started to eat meat, and I do feel a lot better. So I think we can make ethical choices and be really informed about meat. I'm only saying that though because a lot of the stuff on your page is meat. So if there's any vegans, you might not want to look. Um, I do have some vegan. You do have some there. vegan. I know you've included yeah. that, but I know some people like to know because then they will not look at anything that's got anything animal in it. Yeah. But the the truth is, is that we could have another debate on that. But yes. it, you you do cover a lot of food types, but just um, you 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 just make the uh, you've got to follow it. What's the Instagram? It's healthy dot done dot sexy. Right, tell me about the sex bit. People that follow you will will know why that because it is very sexy. But it, see, again, it didn't start off as it is now. I I called it healthy done sexy because I was I was. In that same flat, but better. Yeah. Uh, and I discovered um, reduced fat sausages for the first time. This is like when they first started being sold. Yeah. And I sat there and I was joining Instagram uh, and I never took it seriously for years. But you said, you know, you need a, a username. Um, and I was like, I want to do it about healthy food, but I don't want people to be put off by the word healthy. So it's healthy and it's done. Sexy. Yeah. And, and that's how that started. And then... The fact that it's now like kind of sex stories about a fucking plate of, of duck and potatoes. <laughs> That's just the way it's evolved. That's probably put loads of people off. You know, well, if Dirty it has. <laughs> You've got to follow him. You've got to follow him. I mean, your link will be attached to the, the podcast and the YouTube. But it it's beautiful. It really is. And honestly, I mean, there are celebrities out there that have got huge followings that get get less comments 
on their page <laughs> than you do. Like I have tried to, I, I don't worry too much about it now, but I've tried to, how do you get more comments? How do you get more engagement? Well, whatever you're doing, you've cracked that code. Just reciprocation. It's not just that. It's, so if, if I get a comment, I will reply to that comment, then I'll go onto that person's profile and I'll engage on their most recent post to kind of say thank you back. Yes. Um, and that obviously builds up a relationship because if you do that a thousand times or yeah. two thousand times, then that, that's, yeah. I don't think it's just reciprocation though because I think that's being humble and modest. I think it's more to do with the fact that people, because otherwise that's a lot of reciprocation that you've done which would mean that it would have to be a full-time job. I will say that it's... All or nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe you're right then. Maybe it is that. No, but I know it's a... I, I say that social media is a part-time job. Absolutely. You have to keep on top of it all 100%. the time. You've got to be dedicated. But again, it's all or nothing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to be 1 million percent dedicated to it if you want it to work. Because um, yeah. people always say, how do you get this and how do you do that? And I say, it's a full-time job. It is. I get a lot more DMs than I do comments because some of them are really private. And I end up obviously taking some of those as clients. I do say my DMs, by the way, is not for that. But if someone reaches out, obviously it can develop yeah. into that. Um, and that, you know, you can't have the account I've got and not reply to people if they message. And that's where it gets really quite a lot. But then I do try and signpost them. I, I send them the bits. If you want to work with me, mm -hmm. this is how you work with me. I can't do this all the time but I will never ignore anybody and no. even with the comments I do try to answer to every everyone but I don't actually reciprocate just because I just don't have the time to go on to other people's and comment I just don't have that no no we, we went over your schedule earlier yeah it's crazy you know, I, I don't know why you like, go for a post some days well th actually I don't if you <laughs> that's one of the things that has to go to the side hello's clogged up no time for that today. We'll hold off. <laughs> I need that 15 minutes. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how we that's how we roll. Things things go amiss. Yeah. Whether it's be going to the toilet, <laughs> sleep. No, I do sleep, just not as much as I would like. But I think that's the thing you have to you have to realize that with any success, be it with an Instagram page or with a business or mm -hmm. you know, doing even this you're taking time out of your your day to come here and do this. And actually, this doesn't necessarily benefit your actual job. So no. the fact that you do this means that you're dedicated to the cause, to education, I think. This is a, a very important education piece, I think, for a lot of people today. I hope so. Well, thank you very much for being here. It's, it's, it's been an honour. It really has. It's been an honour. I am... Um... I'm glad I pestered you and, <laughs> and bullied my way into well, this room. Well, you didn't actually. Because I, <laughs> I, I guess this is this is one last final thing. People think to get on a podcast, you've got to pester someone. What did you do? Tell them what you did to get on the podcast. And this was the same for a lot of my guests, actually. Tell them what you did. I just, uh, you had a picture of this room yeah. in your stories. And I said that I would really love to be sat in that seat one day. Yeah. What did I say? Yeah, right. <laughs> that was it. That's as simple as it is. If you're scared to reach out, not just this podcast, but any podcast, if you're scared to reach out, you'll never get on. Yeah, true. If true. you want, if you want to tell your story, or if you want to be on a podcast, you just reach out. Now, some people perhaps aren't as okay, but you have to wait a little while because there has been a bit of a wait mm -hmm. time, hasn't there? There is a wait list, but I'll, if someone's got a story, 
that you come on. That's what this is all about. You don't have to be off the telly. You don't have to have anything to plug. You don't have to have, I don't know, a million in the bank. All you've got to have is a story. <laughs> but I think podcasts are a really beautiful way for people to get seen, get heard, and also do some good with it. So, I, you know, I, I admire that about you. What is next for you? What would you like to do next? I'd, honestly, I'd, I'd like to be, I suppose, known yeah. as the male voice for, for eating disorders, uh, yeah. eating disorders and, and the recovery. Yeah. Um, it would be really nice if someone's suffering and they could say, have you seen Steve's podcast or yeah. when he was a guest on Ellie's podcast or something like that. That would yeah. be that would be great to be in that position. Because you work within the food industry, don't you? Yeah. But would you like to do something more with food, with people that are recovering, with training, education, emotional support? That would, yeah, that would be amazing. I, any way that I could help, because I tend to get emotional when I say this, but I'm going to stay stiff off a lip. When I look back on that young man mm. suffering me mm. I just I just I can just see such a lonely yeah. desperate boy mm. and I know that's still happening yeah I know there's still people especially men yeah. especially with eating disorders that are too embarrassed to say anything about it yes so if I can alleviate that issue and it is an issue mm. then I want to be doing that mm. that's really powerful bless you mm. I really, honestly, I really appreciate you coming on. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Really, oh, I am. Thank you. 